1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, everyone, to the Heritage Foundation. Um, before we get started, just a reminder to... Uh, Turn your phones off or make them vibrate. Just make sure they don't start buzzing or, or ringing in the middle of the uh, of the festivities here. And uh, so with that, we will we'll get going. We have a great program for you today on this really important issue of commercial nuclear energy. I didn't introduce myself. Let me introduce myself first. I'm Jack Spencer, the uh, vice president for the Institute, Institute of Economic Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I, I, I've spent a, a number of years working on nuclear energy issues, so I'm really excited to be here today. I've worked with, with, with Gabby um, for years, so I'm really happy that we were able to get this event going. So, with that, I'll, I'll go ahead and start with my, my remarks. Before we uh, so I'm, I'm really happy everyone's here today to talk about this important issue of commercial nuclear energy cooperation. Before we start, let me thank Gabby and Sasakawa for partnering with us. Um, specifically, I want to thank Alan and Ambassador Zumwalt for co-hosting with me this morning. Um, I want to personally welcome both organizations to Heritage. I hope the success of this event leads to other future ones. I'll keep my remarks short, as you'll hear plenty from me on, on the first panel. Let me first acknowledge the, what brings us here today. I think to a person, we all want to see nuclear energy be successful. There's simply no energy source that's more abundant, cleaner, or more versatile. And it should be affordable. Not only can these attributes help us in the developed world, but can literally drive prosperity in the rest of the world. Despite this promise, despite billions of dollars of public and private money invested and spent, nuclear energy still struggles. What's the problem? Is it too much regulation? Too much government? Not enough government? Probably not that one. Cheap alternatives or unfair competition? And what do we do about it? Well, I think we're going to have that discussion here today. And I suspect that we won't all agree, and, and that should make for a pretty good show. So with that, I'm going to hand the mic over to Alan from Gabby, who I think is going to be emceeing us through the rest of the day. And uh, so with that, Alan, I give the podium over to you.
3: Okay, uh, thank you so much, Jack, for that introduction. Uh, first of all, thank you to Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA and, and Heritage Foundation for their partnership on this event. And then, of course, thank you so much to Heritage for, for hosting us on this occasion. Uh, my name is Alan Ahn, uh, Director of Programs and Communications for the Global America Business Institute, or GABI. Uh, Gabby was founded in 2011 by Ms. Florence Lowe Lee. Uh, she gives her regards from Indonesia uh, and, and her regrets for not being able to join us today. Uh, one of Gabby's uh, main missions is to act as a forum for discussion, education on energy issues, uh, examining many of these issues from a global lens. Uh, for example, Gabby has been hosting a series of, of trilateral meetings uh, with high-level nuclear energy experts from South Korea, Japan, and the United States, uh, to discuss opportunities for cooperation on uh, issues such as spent fuel management, uh, R and D, and advanced te- advanced technologies. Uh, indeed, when you consider the the global scope and, and nature of, of issues such as rising world energy demand, uh the urgent need to to limit mitigate atmospheric emissions from energy production, uh, the national security impacts from uh, the health and robustness of international nuclear safety and nonproliferation regimes. Uh, I, I think it becomes more tenable to argue that uh, international cooperation in nuclear energy uh, is not just an option or an idea. Uh, it's something that's going to be absolutely vital going forward. Uh, before we start our panel discussions, uh, it's my privilege to to introduce the uh, CEO of Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA, uh, former United States Ambassador, Ambassador Zumwalt. Uh, to to make a
4: few remarks. Good morning, everyone. Um, It gives me great pleasure today to uh, come here and – Because uh, at Sasakawa USA, we love partnerships. We think working together with other organizations provides a great way uh, to advance our mission. Um, Just briefly, a word about Sasakawa USA. We're a U.S.-based nonprofit dedicated to strengthening U.S.-Japan relations uh, through education and research. Uh, And so we're very... uh, happy to be today talking about uh, nuclear power, which is an area where I think the United States and Japan and others, Korea, France, and others, have some common interest in trying to uh, figure out a way forward. Um, a brief word about uh, uh, today's event um, and and the angle of Japan. Um, as you all know, Japan has a long history of using nuclear energy to enhance its energy security and fuel its economic growth. Unfortunately, the tragic accident at Fukushima in 2011, I was actually in Tokyo at the time and very much felt the impact of that uh, that tragedy, uh, that brought the issue of nuclear power um, into question in, in the Japanese political system, just at the time when the nuclear industry itself was undergoing uh, great changes. Um, so the question for Japan is, is there a way to retain a civil nuclear power option uh, in spite of these domestic and global challenges? Uh, Japan is an energy-resource-poor country with huge energy demand, and uh, so the question for Japan is, is there a place for a civil nuclear industry uh, in Japan? So today's discussion on how countries like Japan, Korea, the United States, and the European uh, countries might undertake innovative partnerships to ensure nuclear safety and improve their global competitive positions is really a critical one. Um, I think there's a long history of both government and industry collaboration amongst these countries in the nuclear energy area, upon which perhaps we could build a, a good future. So I look forward to hearing about the results of today's conference from, and from today's discussion, and also look forward to additional uh, opportunities to collaborate with Heritage and Gavi in the future. Thank you very much. Oh.
3: We're, we'll go ahead and start the first panel. If we can have our panelists from the first session come up uh, and, and join us on, on, on the panel uh, table, that would be great at this time. Give them a bit more room here. So it's my great privilege to, to introduce our panelists for the first session. Uh, we have Andy Patterson, who's principal at Vertigree Capital and also uh, energy editor at the uh, Environmental Business International. Uh, of course, Jack Spencer is vice president uh, of the Institute for Economic uh, Freedom and Opportunity here at Heritage. And then uh, Dr. Phyllis Yoshida, who's the senior fellow for energy Technology at Sasakawa Peace Foundation USA, uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Asia, Europe, and the Americas at the U.S. Department of Energy. Um, Andy has a deck of slides uh, prepared for us, uh, as you see on the screen. So he'll kick us off. Uh, but before we start, I just wanted to say uh, we have a diverse set of, of backgrounds, um, philosophies, ideologies, viewpoints uh, represented here in this panel. Uh, however, one of the things all of our panelists have in common is that they've devoted significant thought analysis to this issue of international cooperation in civil nuclear, uh, an issue that considering the circumstances, I, I believe, has been grossly under discussed. Uh, ultimately, the very act of, of building, fostering international partnerships uh, in any area is going to require overcoming differences, finding common ground. Uh so hopefully we can practice what we preach here uh, as we go through this panel. So uh Andy, uh please start us off and then uh we'll go into the rest of the discussion. Okay. Thanks, Alan. So can you bring the Sure. Did you wanna speak up here in the podium? Well
5: or? we'll make it more of a panel discussion this way. If Jack or Philip okay. wanna fill in some of the points, I think that might make it a little bit more interactive. No, you might be afraid of what you asked for. Right. <laughs> that's why we're here, Jack.
1: <laughs> All right. Let's do it. We'll just nod yes and no. <laughs> right.
5: No, I'm really glad uh, Phyllis is here as well to get to, and the Admiral, of course, to get a uh perspective from Japan. I think that's really important to the overall dialogue. What uh Walter and I wanted to do, Walter's moderating the second panel, is just set the stage with some common understanding and some insight on nuclear energy, not just as a market jack. But as a global arena for competition. Okay. That's, that's actually taking shape more as a political economy than a market only phenomenon. So we'll get into that a little bit. Love to get your, your feedback. So o- opening observations we might make are, uh, to address some of the drivers now in the global arena, particularly after Fukushima, uh, and note that there are some competing forecasts about where nuclear energy is headed. Some just have it going out of business. Others, like IAEA, see a robust future for it. So the forecasts that are out there in the last couple of years are quite disparate. I'm sure the same is true in Japan, yes. uh, Phyllis. It's totally. a <laughs> fluctuating uh, area. So that's interesting. Then uh, Walter and I have put together a database of deals, what's currently happening on the landscape, uh, so that we can talk about what we're actually seeing rather than just throwing inputs and assumptions into a model. So we think that's interesting. Uh, I would note for Americans, I um, notice Dr. Cutler's here from the State Department, our U.S. sites are now less than 5% of the market globally. This is not well understood, I submit, on Capitol Hill. <clears throat> but it means we've got to really sharpen our game. Uh, then there are some observations to make about who is building where and how is it being financed. So that's an important element of this competition. Uh, the other thing that we would note, Jack, is that no nuclear plants are built in merchant territory. It's an interesting phenomenon. None in the U.S. were ever built in merchant territory, and we've seen time and time again like the Calvert Cliffs project, it's just too difficult to build them in merchant territory. That's an interesting observation. Uh, And then a theme that Alan highlighted at the opening is the USA now with the state of our industry cannot compete globally without allies. Fortunately, we have Japan and Korea well represented here today. So that's a key uh, point going forward. And then it may be worth the industry thinking about how to revitalize and expand the horizon for nuclear by repositioning it. And some of that involves getting out beyond the power sector into chemicals, into fuels, into desalination, into resources. And so the recent MIT report that came out last week highlighted some of that, that advanced reactors can get us into those some of those markets. And so the advanced reactors we submit are going to be critical to the U.S. position going forward. So those are the opening observations. One of the things that we noted in taking a look at the landscape is how much urban areas and cities are really, we would submit, the number one driver for nuclear energy going forward. Cities as off-takers that require power and increasingly are using electric vehicles, not just cars but buses, need to charge those vehicles overnight. And you're not going to do that really with solar and wind. So cities are going to be an increasing driver for nuclear energy and have been particularly with the boom in Asia. They're now 60% of global GDP, according to the New McKinsey Report. Top 660, 600 cities in the world are 60% of global GDP, and that's going to continue to be the case. In fact, two-thirds, two-thirds of electricity growth will be those cities in Asia, while electricity growth in Europe and North America is virtually flat. Advanced economies basically have peaked. And so that's another driver, is the electrification in the developing world, the middle tier in particular, and for those urban demand surges that are uh, going to unfold in the next 20 and 30 years. In fact, this is something we lose touch of in the United States pretty easily. These are pictures just to take two representative cities of Shanghai in 1990 and Shanghai in 2015, just a span of 25 years, and likewise in Mumbai. The scale of urban development, particularly in Asia, is unlike anything we're seeing in Europe or North America. Yes, we have L.A., New York, Chicago, London, Paris, but those cities essentially are growing very slowly now versus in Asia, where the growth is going to become an increasing driver. And China alone is going to have a 100 cities with a million people by 2030. It's a staggering number, a 100 cities with more than a million people. Just to take a, a benchmark, this is where we were before Fukushima. The Admiral referenced Fukushima as a benchmark. And so the, you can see that the P-5 countries still run the majority of the fleet. At least they did in 2010. That's still the case today. China, India, now Britain are making the most investment. Phyllis, I'm hoping you can tell us what's going on in Japan yeah. in terms of turning the reactors back on. That's going to be fascinating to watch. And Japan is obviously active overseas bidding in, in several countries. So they and Korea are natural allies for the U.S. In terms of growth going forward, again, here here's where we are in 2010 in terms of the global fleet. You can see the, the dominance, really, of the OECD, the advanced economies in 2010. But if you just roll forward by 20-year increments, this is what we expect 2030 to look like, And this is based on the latest IAEA projection that they unveiled last month in Vienna. So you can see the growth in Asia, static, really, in North America. Europe probably declines as their fleet gets older, just like we're facing some vulnerabilities as well. And then here we are in 2050. So it's kind of obvious what's going on in terms of the the growth and the shift of the arena outside the United States, and we've increasingly lost touch with it. Again, dramatizing the importance of alliances with Japan and Korea. They are there. And so that's a really important aspect of what we need in allies, is feet on the ground over there. And again, here is that same kind of map with looking at population growth. So you can see now a fit between the projection in 2050 that IAEA unveiled and where the population growth is going to occur. Only Tokyo represents a declining population, but they're still active in the export game in addition to dealing with their domestic fleet now and turning that back on. So if you take that cluster in Asia and South Asia, when we cross the the point of 7 billion people on the planet – Half of them are in that small circle in Asia. 3.5 billion people are in that concentrated group of dots of population versus the rest of the planet. This is the other big driver that we really don't have a good clue about in the United States because we conquered a lot of our pollution problems uh, coming out of the 1980s. But in Japan uh, – excuse me, in India and in China, one million people per year in China and a million people in India die prematurely, a million people each year because of basic hazardous air pollution, particulates, socks and NOx. Those numbers are inconceivable in the United States and Europe. And yet it occurs every year in China and India. So we would note that that's a compelling driver explaining deployment in Asia of nuclear despite Fukushima. Electric vehicles are going to come on faster in Asia than they will here. Buses are much more common in these Asian cities uh, Korea is a leader in electric buses, yeah. and that market will only expand. I mean, Japan is obviously active with batteries as well and in, in the vehicle market. So that becomes another big driver for nuclear energy because you have to charge those batteries. Charging them with coal kind of defeats the purpose. In the United States, then, what I would bring to the argument, Jack, is that National averages, national cost numbers for wind and solar really disguise what we describe as severe regional differences. Sure, solar and wind are cheaper where you can get it. In Maine, New England, not so much. Placing the wind, dealing with the transmission right of becomes a problem. And so when you actually look at the map, of the wind in the United States is west of the Mississippi. 80% of the nuclear is east of the Mississippi. And so the conflict zone is in the middle there around Chicago, where wind that's subsidized blows at night is displacing nuclear so that it doesn't earn any revenues for five or six hours a day. And so those plants are vulnerable because of those subsidies and the wind blowing at night. So wind and solar, we would submit, are still regional solutions, not national solutions. So we don't buy into the argument that wind and solar are cheaper, therefore we don't need nuclear. You have to look at it geographically. Here's the current market share, if you will, of the different fuel sources, And it's obvious that while nuclear has been stable at around 20 percent, gas and cheap gas is eating coal's lunch, almost one for one. In fact, we're seeing coal plants being taken down and natural gas replacing it. What's interesting is that with all the investment that we've seen in solar, 50 percent of it is accounted for by just four states, and it's grown tenfold all the way from 0.1% to 1% of our electricity now. It's just very hard to get solar to register in a lot of places because it only runs or operates about 20% of the time. DOE came out with their forecast going forward for the United States and showed an alarming um, possibility of a decline in part because of the vulnerability. NEI, Ted, has been on top of this in terms of the exposure of the fleet to early retirement. But, DOE we also tried to point a path for what we could do with advanced reactors and what we could do to extend the current fleet, some of it out to 80 years. What are the latest numbers, Ted? About half the fleet might go to 80, 40 percent? Okay. So, again, some of this depends on state approval, But they're looking at at the economics and the geography now. This is the other point that DOE highlighted in their meeting with the states last November. They said the advanced reactors in Japan and Korea are both working on this, give you a number of different options that the current light water reactors don't because of the higher temperatures and some of the configurations. You can make fuels. You can do chemical synthesis. You could co-locate potentially desalination, which is a big issue in Asia uh, and certainly in the Middle East. And so how much of the market could be not just for replacing the current fleet, which is aging, but extending into these new areas? And that's what DOE laid out in their roadmap in January of 2017, is a look at, yes, extending the fleet, but then looking at deployment, perhaps accelerated, of small modular reactors and then generation four. So DOE at least has put out a roadmap to get to 200 gigawatts from the current fleet of 100 gigawatts, but it incorporates SMRs and advanced reactors, importantly. In the derby for where this forecast is going, there are negative forecasts of nuclear that we would highlight, Jack, as like Bloomberg, focus on economics first. The forecasts that we're seeing internationally focus on politics and foreign policy first, that nuclear energy is actually being absorbed into the foreign policy of Russia and China. It's not an economics-first decision like it is here. And so that changes the outlook for what nuclear energy could be Going forward. And so, if you take the Bloomberg New Energy Finance forecast, it shows a dramatic decline in nuclear. And they identified when they rolled this out a few months ago that this is a least cost optimization forecast, economics only. Nuclear is too expensive, wind and solar are cheaper. They really didn't pay attention to siting in terms of wind and solar. Therefore, you get lots more wind and solar and not so much nuke. We think that's naive or incomplete relative to the full balance of factors that are really at work with nuclear. And so this is what DOE said. There's actually increasing interest in nuclear, and much of it is politically or resource-oriented or energy security-driven. So we would throw that factor in there for you to comment on, Jack, mm-hmm. is. What does nuclear mean for a country's energy security? And so where we see that is in the forecast by AAEA, which is not economics first. Each year, the International Atomic Energy Agency polls their member countries and asks them, what are your plans for nuclear? And that's reflected in this chart, and they give a high and a low forecast to basically offer what the low-end and what the high-end could be. They moderated the uh, forecast this past year um, down about 75 gigawatts in the high forecast, but held the low forecast pretty much where it was. The important point here uh, is twofold. Even with the low forecast, you have to build at least 200 gigawatts globally. In addition to that, like we said earlier, if you have SMRs and advanced reactors, does that open new possibilities? Do new niches appear if those become possible? <clears throat> when Walter and I did the rack-up of what's going on in the current landscape, uh, you'll, Alan will send these slides out, but the summary point here is that the, the chessboard for where nuclear is actually being built is being run by a very few set of players. So this matrix lays out where the reactors are being built and financed and who's building and financing them. And so the big yellow bar, for example, is China. And China is increasingly building their own after sampling a bunch of different other vendors. They've got Russian reactors. They've got Westinghouse reactors. They've been kind of surveying the field in terms of technologies and now they're building their own and selling a couple of those to Britain. So China's become very aggressive. The other point in this chart is the red bar, which is Russia reasserting its foreign (laughs) policy and footprint. I hope you'll comment on this, Phyllis. In countries where we dare not go, they want to scoop up loose markets where we're not really paying attention. And so far, they seem to be successful. We'll show you how in a minute. And then I put Westinghouse in the blue bars up front. It's about 12% of the global game if you count India. So they've got some success in China now. They're, they're negotiating six reactors in India. But we're by no means the market leader any longer. And that point needs to be driven home to Congress and our foreign policy team. When you look at how the deals are actually coming together, Walter and I came up with this categorization of characterizing the nature of the deal. The biggest bar on the table is a national owner, like uh, nuclear uh, power of India or Chinese nuclear, EDF in France with a national vendor. That's the dominant form. So this is part of our our clue, Jack, on why we see this as a national or a global arena with national competition, not just a market, because of the way the players are coming to the game. The American example, a utility owner with a private vendor is less than 10% of the ball game. It's not even a significant portion of the current landscape. So just to wrap up then this is the way that we see reactors being sold. The leaders in the nuclear energy olympics jack are Putin and Xi Jinping. They've taken the dominant share And that's why we need these alliances, Alan. One of the ways that they're doing that is this One Belt, One Road initiative, because China's going to use that to build 30 reactors along that belt. What's interesting is, in essence, they've partnered with Russia to build reactors along the sea route. So here are the Spratly Islands. China is taking territory by building artificial islands, contracting Russia to, to provide floating reactors on a couple of them to basically take control of the sea lanes over which they're going to import and export uh, a lot of product and fuels over the next three decades increasingly the sales are being done by national leaders. Here's a collection of them. That's Xi Jinping and the major deal in in Britain, upper left, Abe with Erdogan in Turkey, Macron with Modi in, in India, uh, Perry in India as well. We've done some follow-up there. This is Putin with Sisi in Egypt. Likewise, Putin with Modi and Putin with, Erdogan in Turkey. What was interesting at the World Cup is Mohammed bin Salman, lo and behold, ended up in the skybox with Tsar Putin. And we're speculating that they discussed a little bit of nuclear in between free kicks. <laughs> this is really an illustration then of that broader market where you see the water stress. And you see in the case of Egypt that they're going to lose one-fourth of their fresh water to Cairo over the next decade because Ethiopia is building this huge dam. So Russia sees this. They're building or offering an 85% financing deal to Egypt to build four Russian reactors, and they're going to secure one of the major shipping points for China's One Belt, One Road initiative up the Red Sea Lane, through the Suez Canal. And so this is that map where you see China exploiting the one belt, one road concept to um, take advantage of their geographic extension and build reactors along that route. Russia is building reactors at several of the port points for securing those sea lanes. And did any of you hear the NPR story yesterday or this morning about China taking over Piraeus? This is a big NPR story in the last two days. China's invested in 12 European ports over the last six years. They've taken control of Piraeus. This map helps explain that. Piraeus is obviously a gateway into all of Europe. And having the Red Sea secured by Russia, again, using some of these uh, nuclear plants as a a presence – further enables that gigantic trade strategy to unfold with direct access to the Mediterranean. In fact, here's their gambit in Britain when France and the U.K. had to go to China to get equity investment for Hickling Point C. China responded, said, sure, we'll put in a third of the cash, and you're going to give us Bradwell and Sizewell to boot. That's hardball negotiation. They're using nuclear in their foreign policy. We're not doing this, at least that I can tell. I'd love to hear different. And so lastly, the whole nuclear game is unfolding as much more than power. It's desal, it's electric vehicles, it's transport, it's potentially chemical synthesis. And life support systems becomes a bigger value-added proposition in terms of what nuclear can provide, a burgeoning global economy bent on development. That's a different picture than we're typically familiar with here in the United States. But China and Russia are teaming up in this global arena to take share. So therein, I would would submit Alan, Jack, uh, Phyllis, the imperative for America-seeking alliances – All right. Okay. Can can we comment, Alan?
3: <laughs> okay, we're, comment, we're, <laughs> we're chomping at the bit here, I think. Uh let me let me just scale things back momentarily and and maybe go back to maybe a more fundamental uh but important question uh to all of this. Um what are some of the consequences uh, you know as as andy stated uh, at this trajectory you have uh the russian nuclear corporation's chinese nuclear corporations they are posed to to dominate this market uh in uh, you know within a certain period of time what are the consequences of
2: of ceding this market to to that competition i can't answer that Alan. I, we just heard a big long presentation i got to respond to it so <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> i it's this is my organization i know you're the moderator but i'm going to ahead and just say a couple of words if that's okay thanks First of all, forecasts are bogus. Anyone who believes any economic forecast, it's at your own peril. Look at any uh, uh, IEA forecast from 10 years ago, and you will see they are all wrong. Look at any forecast for nuclear energy from 10 years ago, and you will see that they are all wrong. Whether this is because of political considerations, economic considerations, or whatever considerations, all economic forecasts are all wrong. So put them all to the side and forget about them. Um, Secondly, to the extent that we're going to rely on government to drive technology forward is the extent to which we will be having the same conversation that we're having today that we had two decades ago in two decades because we stay in the same box. It's a losing box. Governments don't drive technology forward. They create straw men and say we need to do this and that, and then the technology stays right where it is, which is right where we are, which is right where we were. Thirdly, um, we too quickly conflate Government and industry and whose role should be what. And the result of this is a, 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 a policy mishmash that makes no sense, has no long-term direction. We talk, when we talk about this, I'm guilty of it as well, whether it's in trade or in nuclear, of states engaging in these things. And it's true, certain states do engage in commercial activity, but we can't think about this just as the US and versus China it's its companies who are doing these things and we need to think in commercial terms we can't ignore that otherwise we're just not going to get to a to a good spot uh, spot ultimately and be able to break out of this box that kept, has kept us where we are um for for decades literally secondly i, I was asked specifically um about uh the the uh uh Economically, nuclear will make it. Strong. Oh, do we want nuclear energy? Um, do we want to be a leader in in and uh, do we, don't we want to be a leader in the nuclear energy industry? We do, but not if it's an under not if it's uneconomical. You don't win any long term games by leading in a. Uneconomical activity. Now don't mistake any of my words as being anti-nuclear. I'm not. There's a whole nother discussion about how to make us economical. But if we're gonna stay in this box and if that's the game, it's a stupid game. We shouldn't be playing the game. Look at these people, these dictators. They're the ones who are leading this game. That's not a game I wanna play. If, if the, if the totality of the value of nuclear energy is as a foreign policy tool, then it should be treated as a foreign policy tool. And let's not pretend that there's any there's any economics about it. Remember what Adam Smith said in his invisible hand. This might not be an exact quote, but I'll paraphrase it to fit my, what I think about it. Adam Smith told us about the invisible hand. I'd look at it more as a fist. And you can ignore that fist, but eventually if you do, it's going to punch you in the face. And that's precisely what will happen is if we continue down this path of shoveling more public money into a nuclear industry within the box that we have now under the, the, under the, the assumption that we need it in order to compete with with socialist, communists, and dictators, we won't win a socialist, communist, and dictator game because we ain't socialist, communists, and dictators. So my 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 proposal or my my supposition is, don't play that game. I don't want to win that game. Let's redefine the game. Let's look at what nuclear energy is. Look what the problems are that have kept it from fully blossoming into what it should be. And let's play that game, and then we can compete with anyone, anywhere, if it's worth competing for. I'm sorry, thanks Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay,
1: uh. I get to add.
3: Sure, please. Uh, (laughs) Chime in Phyllis, please.
1: Right, maybe taking it in a slightly different direction. Let me answer your Japan question first, and I know Scott Campbell this afternoon, or on the second panel, will add a little bit more. Last time I checked, there were eight, almost nine reactors back up and running. Uh, it is, in my opinion, unlikely that they'll ever account for more than about, I don't know, 10, 12 to maybe 15% of Japanese energy again, and that's maybe on the high side. Uh, METI's roadmap is that it should go up to about 22%. Uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, but... That all comes back to why I think Japan and the U.S. must cooperate, and it goes back to really the political economy points uh, that you were making a few minutes ago. Uh, Cooperation takes many forms, and Japan, in terms of civil nuclear, in terms of sort of the government R&D piece of it, uh was is the US's oldest partner the Adams for Peace program that uh president eisenhower started uh, the very first country to sign up was japan and the reason they signed up was really for energy security purposes uh as a country that has to import nearly all of its energy uh Right or wrong, uh, nuclear was seen as a semi-domestic, uh, resource, uh, that would hopefully, if you ever got to breeder reactors, et cetera, would help really ease that energy security worry. The other reason that it's has been, and we've cooperated very closely with Japan over the years in terms of nuclear. Uh, Governments, we'll start with sort of the government side, is really the leading role that Japan and the U.S. working together have taken in leading all sort of international organizations related to energy, be they IEA, NEA, IAEA. And together... I think having like-minded countries involved and increasingly also Korea and of course yeah, pieces of Europe, uh, really leads to a group of countries that, uh, treat safety, environmental and non-proliferation problems as serious and in the same way. Uh, what worries me a little bit about Russia and China sort of running the commercial market, uh, is that without a strong presence from OECD countries that take safety environment non-proliferation very seriously, uh, that increasingly they won't, uh, perhaps. I mean, certainly everyone understands that, as we saw with Fukushima, we saw with Chernobyl, et cetera, that an accident uh, anywhere is an accident everywhere, uh, but that does worry me, and I think the very strong partnership that U.S. Japan, France, et cetera, have had together has, uh, been very important. Uh, going forward, I think it's unlikely, and this is my own personal opinion, uh, that, uh, Japan will build any new large commercial reactors. Uh, the will isn't there. Uh, but there is an opening, and I think we talked a little bit about this before, is that if we're not going to be competitive for economic reasons and shouldn't perhaps compete anymore in sort of large, large much. commercial reactors, <laughs> uh, uh, again, being more of a science background, uh, the way you do it is by innovating and running faster. So is there a whole new market of advanced reactors that we can uh, sort of take the market back with that uh, are more market-driven? Uh, smaller companies perhaps don't require that huge amount of financing that would actually solve the problems of a lot of those countries in Asia and elsewhere that you put up. So I'd throw that out there. And there is some sentiment in Japan starting to look at that option Uh, not just continuing to export what they've, have exported in the past, even if they're not going to build them at home, but, you know, to really leap into that next, uh, those next generations of, uh, nuclear. And again, going back again, not to the point where it's eventually, hopefully, the, a lot of little companies are start, have started and are actually starting to get out there with, uh, SMRs, but, that joint research piece that comes before all of that, it's really important to dot, tie the intellectual capital of, you know, like-minded countries again together to move faster and to maybe retake some of that market. Uh, I don't worry in some ways quite as much about all of those numbers of plants that you see China and Russia out there, um uh, offering. Uh, a lot of them probably will never come to be. Uh But that said, you know, it is a foreign policy tool. And as we go out there, if we go out with, you know, traditional reactors, we have to realize that's the environment in which we're working. But is there in Japan, a new generation for nuclear based on something, a new paradigm of types of reactors? So I'll stop
3: there. Okay. Uh Jack going back to some of the comments that you made <laughs> earlier and, uh, and this is uh, a question primarily for you but Andy and Phyllis feel, uh, please feel free to to interject and respond uh you know you have Russian nuclear corporations Chinese nuclear corporations uh not necessarily corporations as we might understand that term uh in, in some sense they act you know essentially as arms of their respective national governments and, and this is what the US private sector is up against um, you know, it seems as though U.S. industry is in desperate need of, uh, t- to borrow a military term, force multipliers. Uh, Jack, what do you see a- a- as some potential force multipliers, and how do you see the role of international cooperation in, in all
2: of this? Let me uh, just quick, first quickly say that I don't, I don't view the proliferation of expensive, uneconomical reactors or anything. As a winning long-term strategy. It looks scary. I just don't think it's sustainable. So to the extent that Russia or China wants to engage in that, Mm -hmm. I think we're handing them rope to to hang themselves, to be quite honest. And I don't think we should engage in that. That's not to be naive about what they're trying to do. So we benefit economically and from a national security standpoint from interacting with other countries, both country to country, but also, more importantly, private Mm -hmm. to private. That's what drives society. What we need to think about is, does having a nuclear industry in the United States make us stronger or weaker? I think it makes us, makes us stronger. So the question is then, what can we done to make it more economical? And then, can government do that or does the private sector do that? And, and, uh, How's the government getting in the way of that happening? Whose role is what? And this is where it, this international cooperation piece comes in. I think that's incredibly important, but we need, we can't conflate the role of government with the private sector. The government should be there to break down barriers so that peaceful private activities, commercial activities can happen over borders with as little friction as possible. Not, the government's role should not be to get into the business of nuclear energy. So by, by inking one, two, three agreements, by focusing on nonproliferation, regulatory standards. These are the sorts of things that can help industry to then do what it does so that we can have a nuclear industry in the United States that's strong and one that that helps us and our allies be strong, that grows organically and naturally. That's how we strengthen ourselves, and that's how we ultimately become competitive in this arena. Now, we have to allow for the possibility that maybe nuclear energy is not a competitive Technology right now. I don't think that's the case and I and I believe strongly that none of us have any idea because we've never allowed nuclear energy to fully blossom within the marketplace. That that the magic of the market is that it 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 creates and it innovates. Government just doesn't do it. So Andy Phyllis?
5: Well okay, so we're debating over the extent of government, little or more. So in the case of jet airplanes, satellites, there were a number of roles for government in terms of funding early innovation. And I can meet you halfway, be a first buyer. In other words, don't have the government build the airplane, get McDonnell Douglas, get Boeing, get the rest of them in the business of making them. So I think you support government contracting in certain domains because we support it in the defense budget. So I think we're in common ground there. Just, just to be, yeah, yeah. It, I'm in support of
2: government being a first buyer for things that the government needs to meet a government purpose, usually national security. So, nuclear energy, clearly, I mean, we have a hundred small modular reactors floating around the ocean right now. So, there's no need. Government's not only been the first buyer, but it's been a major purchaser of nuclear reactors from, uh, from the 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 the, the Manhattan Project up through Shippenport into um, Evansville and Barberton, Ohio, right now, where they're building nuclear reactors. So, yeah, they do it. They should keep doing it. They should not be the first buyer for the next AP-1000 or small modular reactor for commercial purposes, I would.
5: Sure, and we don't need them to do that one. Yeah, I agree with you there. In terms of the first uh, nuclear units when we got started in the 1950s, government was the first buyer of those mm-hmm. because it hadn't been done before and the banks weren't going to touch it. And we're in a similar situ- situation now with advanced reactors. Commercial banks on Wall Street, we've talked to them, are not going to touch those. They're first-of-a-kind units. So there, there is a popular function for government which has worked in the past and helps catalyze industry getting going. That, to me, has helped make the nuclear industry what it is today.
2: And this is why this is a good panel. I disagree completely. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not the lack of capital that prevents industry from making those investments into those reactors, nor is it first of a kind. I mean, government didn't have to build the first telephone or, or, or cell tower for, for Verizon. What is preventing first rockets, what, what first is,
5: satellites, right, first reactors.
2: Without question, those were to meet – when, when, government investment, government spending in technology works when it's to meet a national security or national need that the market's not doing. GPS is a good example. You just named some. And then whenever you allow the private sector to take those technologies and spin them off into commercial applications, what never works is when government sets out to achieve a commercial application. That's that's how government fails. So what you just pointed out in terms of the first nuclear reactors, even the first commercial reactors, those were there not because anyone cared about commercial nuclear energy but because Admiral Rick under, Rickover understood that in order to have the industrial base to build his submarines, he needed – commercial nuclear reactors. That's why we have the light water reactors. So that was all national security driven. What I'm suggesting is that it's not a lack of capital nor a lack of government spending that keeps small modular reactors from moving forward, but it's a over-regulation. It's an NRC that's geared towards large light water reactors. It's a nuclear waste system that's controlled by the government. It's a regulation system that's unpredictable and expensive. It's all of those things. Let's fix those things. Then let's see what happens on the small mod side, is what I would Put forth.
5: This is good. So how do we change the NRC? Do we change the funding model? Do we get new people? How do we get those barriers out?
2: I, I think those are all interesting questions that should, that should be the subject of debate. I, I, I mean, I, so I think that they're, well, this isn't, you know, heritage speaks with one voice. This isn't, uh, this isn't established heritage policy. I'm just thinking out loud.
5: That's what we want to hear. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so one, you know, an, a model that I think would be interesting in NRC, with NRC is, to allow folks out of the NRC process altogether, and to be have an insurance-based situation where you forego NRC regulation, you also forego Price Anderson protection, and you go out and get insurance that's attached to the liability of the, the, the what you're doing, and you go out and build a reactor. Someone like a Bill Gates who wants to do this might be able to operate in an environment like that, or some variation thereof, where you have a a um, to go back to the future a little bit. Where you don't have a one-stop shop for nuclear action, but you have a nuclear commercial development, but you have a, a much, uh, a pay-as-you-go model where you're, you're building and your, your NRC is building the expertise, uh, as you go along. I think there are different options out there. And yes, the pay structure I think is completely broken at NRC. I think getting NRC out of the oversight or the, the application of regulation business would be an interesting thing. Yes, NRC can establish the regulations. Why can't third party private, why can't third private parties compete for actually doing most of the work for the regulation and competing for that? There are a ton of things that we can do.
5: I don't Um, think Congress would allow that. Well, I mean,
2: Congress is a bunch of uh, crony big spenders
5: (laughs) who have,
2: uh, who can't run a business, much less a country. So that's true. But if people like us who who p- debate these things publicly build up demand for this, then you can push Congress. I mean, they do crazy things all the time. They can do crazy, they do crazy bad things all the time. Maybe we can get them to do a crazy good thing.
1: Can we step back? sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just one more, because you can have, we can have lots of, uh, having been a career government employee for a long time and, uh, running many U.S., uh, government industry business partnerships, mostly for technology and science, uh, I have a slightly different view, but not a totally different view. Uh, we wouldn't have SMRs out there ready for Bill Gates or other people to fund or to get insurance for if we had not had government investment into some of this. If we had not, you know, provided facilities at Idaho National Lab, Argonne, et cetera, for very initial demonstrations and then let the industry go forward with it.
2: I I hate to, uh, can I, I I hate to just interrupt. But, and and yeah, I Interrupt. agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> those were all part, though, of the national security apparatus. The, the development of those reactors were part of nat, the national security um, or part, a national security function. So, don't mistake what I'm saying is government should never invest in anything. Um, although I might say that, but that's not what I'm saying right now. Um, what I'm saying right now is that uh, that that yeah, government should invest in things to meet national security needs and then step back. It's when it gets into that commercial space. That everything goes awry and it distorts the whole the whole process, and that we've been having this exact conversation for decades should tell us that maybe we're doing something wrong. That more government guarantees or whatever it just does it just it demonstrably does not work. Um.
1: <laughs> well, I have to manufacture to innovate and innovate to manufacture. So, <laughs> uh,
3: moderating this panel's. A lot harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> um, Ellen, Ellen, we just I'm keep sorry. talking. <laughs>
2: this is literally the she easiest panel talking. you ever have moderated ever. Okay, <sighs> let me let me
3: see if I can try to find some common ground amongst this panel. It, it seems as though there's there's some, uh, there's some relative optimism uh, on advanced nuclear with, with all mm-hmm. the panelists here, uh, and, and certainly you you all talked about how advanced nuclear might change some of the realities that Andy described about uh, the market or or the lack thereof. Uh, how, what are the opportunities for for international cooperation in, in advanced nuclear? I think you have a lot of U.S. advanced nuclear companies. It's being led by the private sector, not the government here in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would love to partner with manufacturers overseas. They would love to demonstrate, uh, have test reactors in, in other countries uh, where there are more favorable Canada? regulatory environments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Canada being one. So uh, I just wanted to get all of your guys' thoughts on that in particular.
5: What do you see from Japan's
1: perspective? I think uh, definitely from Japan. Japan is a market economy most of the time. <laughs> Maybe not all the time. Uh, but I think a lot of those technical connections between suppliers and the companies are already there. Uh, what helps, I think, and is a role partly for government, maybe, you know, for labs, et cetera, that we haven't really come up to is really maybe working on setting the uh, voluntary standards and specifications for some of these so that they can get out faster and be interoperable, so.
3: Jack, your thoughts on the advanced nuclear movement in this country and, and you know, possibilities for partnerships internationally.
2: I'm extraordinarily optimistic when it comes to nuclear. I mean, I've literally dedicated my career to it because I think it's so important. And the reason where I'm not as optimistic is the timelines. Look, I think we could be doing all kinds of cool things right now, but government gets in the way. The, the opportunity for uh, for international cooperation, I think, is what I was saying earlier, to develop the, the markets so that private industry can do what private industry does as fric- with as little friction as possible. I will say this I was brought up uh, the the regulation how to how to push down regulation that's one of the reasons I think national regulation is so important rather than harmonization across countries because that provides a countervailing deregulatory force against the regulation that's one of the ways we can instigate change in Congress is because a lot of people i we all are are sympathetic to this narrative that we just heard that there are these countries doing these things and we're losing my my problem with it is that I don't want to do what they're doing in order to play that game. But we can use that leverage to, 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 to compel Congress to say, look, they're winning. We need to win at our game, but you're getting in the way. What we need is regulatory relief. And so that's an important role for inter- internationally because it's that it's the international regulation that we can, we can say, uh, look, they, we need to regulate less than they do so that we can go innovate.
1: And and innovate more. And innovate more.
2: Okay. Uh, I I, I think we have...
1: Do what we do best at. (laughs) Right?
3: We'll we'll turn to questions from the audience a bit later. We do have plenty of time left on this panel. Uh, (laughs) I I have some more questions for all of you. Um, Andy, uh, you uh, co-authored a report for Atlantic Council a couple years back uh, with Walter Howes, who's the moderator for the second panel uh, on redefining global leadership in nuclear energy. In that report, you talk about some of the uh strategic considerations for us industry in selecting international partners uh that was back in 2013 i believe yeah. uh fast forward 5 years uh, what do you see now as sort of the critical factors and ingredients for a uh, successful uh extensive uh, you know broader multinational partnership industrial partnership
5: Well, the imperative, like the title of this event, Alan, has not changed. In fact, it's gotten more intense. (laughs) And so if we take a harsh look, Jack and Phyllis, at the actual landscape of where we are, it, it was not well known or understood by Congress that Toshiba and Hitachi really absorbed our only two nuclear vendors 10 years ago. When we talked to Capitol Hill, they didn't seem to be aware of that. That was kind of shocking. GE and Hitachi is really Hitachi GE, particularly when you go outside the United States. Toshiba has had a spectacular bankruptcy, and now Westinghouse is free of that, but they're now owned by the Canadians. Canadians. They're still the leading U.S. vendor in terms of a presence. We've got a burgeoning set of uh, advanced reactor startups that I think would would represent the kinds of entrepreneurial spirit that Jack wants to encourage. So let's heed some of Jack's points about how do we encourage those advanced reactors to move faster. Some of that is regulatory, and some of it is, frankly, going to be funding and siting to get the first units built. That's what the banks are saying. We'll come in the third one. Show me the first one. And so Congress has said, okay... We're going to study building some of the first units at military bases or DOE lab sites. What's interesting is if you go to the five DOE lab sites, or five of them, um, you know, like Hanford and Idaho and Savannah River and Oak Ridge, it's YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard, immediately. When you go to some of those communities, there's no NIMBY syndrome. They want the jobs. They want the high-quality technology that that represents, and so citing this perhaps could represent a form of regulatory relief. Jack is that citing at these government sites is a useful function for government. Have industry do it, get as much private capital mobilized as you can. But government citing is something that worked in the 50s and 60s when we first started this game, and it's you know potentially a model that carries over when you go abroad, because in many cases, you're going to potentially build these on a military base overseas for security purposes. So there's a public-private mm-hmm. partnership model that extends really beyond the United States, and one that we used successfully, I would submit in the 50s.
1: I would argue that for Japan and others in the audience can... Uh, uh, disagree with me, but I think without a US presence and a US partnership with those Japanese partners, even if it is mostly Hitachi, et cetera, that uh, the Japanese people are not going to want to go into advanced nuclear or go even, you know, consider having nuclear again. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that's uh, you know, sort of creating that environment and again, you know, lower not not lowering risk but, um, uh, creating a supportive environment where people feel safe. Again, getting back to the fact that we really need those OECD countries out there leading in safety non-proliferation, et cetera. Uh, besides, you know, that's part of the environment that needs to be created so that companies can take off, be innovative, and be entrepreneurial. But very often, Without that sort of developmental government piece, and we can argue probably forever, and those of us who've been doing this thing, stuff for 40 years, uh, have argued it for 40 years, where, you know, how far up the line do you go in terms of, uh, government partnership and support, uh, that's not the regulatory piece, but it's the developmental piece. But without, I think, some international partnerships among like-minded countries, they, we are going to lose a major partner in Japan. Um, the Europeans, the French, aren't doing all that well. You know, perhaps uh, new types of uh, reactors. You know, Canada obviously wants to get back into the game, mm-hmm. um, et cetera. But we really do need. It's not a world anymore where most research is done here. It's really a global world. Well.
3: Let me get to this point of, you know, global governance. Um, and as you stated, you know, having the OECD, the U.S. continuing to have influence on safety regimes, on proliferation regimes. There, there are those who argue that the U.S. does not need a commercial presence to have influence in those areas. How would you, how would you respond to that?
1: Okay. Back in the, back in the 80s and 90s when I used to try to convince lots of people that we actually needed to manufacture in the U.S. if we were going to retain, you know, those research capabilities and the innovation capabilities. I would argue that if you're not manufacturing and you're not in the market, it's going to be very hard to convince Congress, others to fund uh, the work that needs to be done in nonproliferation, et cetera.
2: Jack you had something to yeah I,
1: mean, I i I generally I worry agree. that they wouldn't <laughs> yeah i I generally
2: agree with that, but that's not the end of the answer for me to me, like I said earlier if what if the world is this state run expensive nuclear reactor world, I don't think that's sustainable, so I don't think that we need to build. A state-run, expensive U.S. nuclear industry. In order to impact that, I think that's a fool's errand. I
1: don't think anyone—at least, I don't think either of us think that. No,
2: right? no, no one. I don't think anyone would articulate it that way. But I think that's the upshot of—and I'm not—I'm not, I'm not <laughs> arguing anyone specifically is arguing these policies. I'm arguing that's the general thrust of the policy prescriptions that I see out in the world, in which I—I I, I see. Instead, what we need to say is, uh, how do we make the U.S. industry? Uh, or any industry, frankly, successful, and I think we need to go to the underlying structural problems that have made uh, the industry what it is today. Because it's it's problematic, and it's it is the regulation, it is the nuclear waste problem, it is a um, a Department of Energy who decides which small modular reactor is going to get funding and you know and starts funneling money towards that it is all of those things that we need to question because they just don't work so so yes we do need in order for the US to be influential over in, in uh, overseas we need to be doing it here but the way we do it here matters
3: like j- it, going back to your point about uh, the regulatory relief and, and those sorts of issues, I think you have a lot of advanced nuclear companies here in the U.S. Uh, as, as Phyllis mentioned, they're going to – I think they're already making the bet that uh, things are not going to get cleared up here in the U.S. They're going to Canada to get their, their designs licensed, uh, tested, demonstrated. Uh, a lot of these country, companies, U.S. companies, are looking at – uh overseas markets as sort of the ideal places for their you know initial units uh you know, partnerships with you know manufacturers in other countries korean manufacturers japanese manufacturers uh some of these things seem to be happen- happening organically right now on the part of a lot of the private sector you know dealing with advanced nuclear at the moment um i don't know if you had anything <laughs> to
5: say about that. That's not. Okay. No, no. It's, it's <laughs> going to come down to it's who gonna... builds the first units and are they successful. Right. And so to some degree uh, in Jack's camp it's going to be some of these privately funded efforts like TerraPower in China. Um, China is also funding a high temperature gas reactor. France is trying to do the same. Um, it's not clear yet what the UK is. Uh, the United States um, as Jack laments is funding some small modular reactors and advanced reactors out of DOE funding. So far, we haven't seen um, private banks in the U.S. interested. There is venture capital interest in the early stage, but not for construction. So far, it's confined to design. And as you said, Jack, the, the hurdle of half a million dollars at least to get an advanced reactor licensed privately funded, mind you, has been too high a hurdle combined with siting to get the first unit built. So therein lies a challenge.
2: But we need to ask ourselves, why is that the case? Billions of dollars are bet all the time on big projects. It's that the regulatory and policy environment increases the risk to the extent that it makes banks, it makes those people who would make those bets unable to do it because there's too much risk outside of their control and There's uncertainty in the regulatory process and yeah. regulatory and policy process thus that's what we need to get to rather than mitigating that cost through subsidies and other government interventions that just layers upon layers and and undermines the pressure within communities like this to force Congress to make the underlying structural reforms that are necessary so that the banks can make the investments that they need to make.
1: But don't we also have to do education? Because the one reason you have all those regulations, et cetera, and it, certainly this is more than enough true in Japan, is, uh, you know, safety concerns and fear. So if we get to the point where we have small modular or other reactors that are, can be mass manufactured and are, can be proven safe, effective, economical, et cetera, then we can get back into the industry.
2: Yeah, I agree with that.
5: So we're stuck, Jack, because the banks say, when you get all that worked out, give us a call. Yeah. Because we're going to do gas pipelines right now.
1: (laughs) If they can get the steel.
2: (laughs) Keep your hands out of my pockets as you you figure that out. Right. (laughs) What do you see if if behind
3: uh, the regulatory – mess as as Jack might describe it um you know if 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 it largely is rooted in sort of social ignorance or social perceptions about nuclear socialism <laughs> <laughs> or the, um, <laughs> what's do you see the opportunity for for advanced reactors to change that perception I, I I don't know what sort of uh perception change if at all is occurring in countries like Japan, you know, with sort of these advanced reactors that are supposed to be inherently safer and, and, and immune to a lot of these accidents that uh, happened. There's small
1: small groups starting to talk about okay. it, but certainly across the board, it's not true. Uh, I don't know if you, we need another Atoms for Peace campaign that really talks about the what you can do with safer nuclear reactors.
2: Yeah, I mean, look where we were in 2005, six, seven. I mean, people were generally okay with nuclear. People were excited about the nuclear renaissance. I, I think you know Fukushima didn't help matters for sure, but it wasn't Fukushima that killed the whole thing. It was other stuff. I would argue it's these underlying structural issues that I keep coming back to. But cheap gas. But cheap gas. People blame cheap gas, but it's not a cheap gas problem. We've had cheap gas before. There's always competition. It's cheap gas in addition to all of these structural problems. Um, So, so so there there is an education problem for sure, but we I think we can overcome that with success. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you look at this, uh, this story that came out last week that EPA is relooking at the, um, the radiation, how we regulate radiation. I mean, that's a huge step in the right direction, and that's something that the antis came out right away after. Now, it wasn't a big story, so it hasn't blown, I shouldn't say blown up, it hasn't trended. Um, Thankfully, but that—that's the kind of regulatory reform that could really have real long-term implications, and is part of this education process because it was a lack of education that kept us tied to, to you know, to, to antiquated notions of regulation, uh, uh, radiation regulation.
3: Uh, let me let me play the role of devil's advocate, and that seems pretty natural for this panel, I believe. Um,
5: Angels advocate.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you yeah, uh, partnerships, uh, multinational partnerships, international cooperation seems like a great idea in theory. Uh, in practice, you know, what's the possibility that this just makes things more complicated, more unwieldy, you know, as, as Jack is probably likely to agree with? You know, it's, it's already difficult enough uh, to conclude bilateral civil nuclear cooperation agreements, navigate the U.S. export control regime. Um, your your thoughts on that?
1: It is harder. <laughs> but the benefits are so much greater.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And spreading the risk right. is better. Uh, again, more innovative minds coming together. Uh, not harmonization, but interoperability uh, possibilities can happen faster. So, yeah, it is harder. And there's lots of things you have to keep in mind, but it can be done.
2: I agree. I think, I think international cooperation at the government and private sector levels are critical and important, and we won't be successful without them. We got, we, but don't conflate the two. Okay. Um, before we open to questions
3: from the audience, uh, maybe just a parting question. Uh, your, your thoughts on, on what the, the ideal, what would be the features and characteristics of an ideal multinational partnership in, in nuclear energy? involving the U.S. and and, and its various partners and allies across the world.
2: I'll I'll say something. Um, I keep trying to let other people talk. (laughs) uh, I I think sort of the same virtues as a free trade agreement almost, that you create this market that allows for frictionless interactions, commercial and otherwise, within national borders. Because nuclear energy has so many historical tethers to things that are difficult um, I think it's incredibly important with nuclear things that sort of lay out a national, multinational understanding of fuel ownership of, you know, all those sorts of things. It allows for, uh, for, for research whether it's government or, or private sector, and that brings a realistic, and actually science-based uh, perspective of policy as it pertains to spent nuclear fuel and and, and and nuclear materials in general. We so often get caught up in this assumption that everything nuclear is a bomb and that anything that takes nuclear fuel and processes it in any way is a bomb. And none of these things are bombs. And the only countries make bombs who want to build bombs. And we too often assume that people are going to build bombs that have no interest in building freaking bombs. So let's take <laughs> an actual <laughs> – so let's take a realistic view – Build a series of understandings that allows that that interaction, commercial and otherwise, to take place.
1: I'd agree with all of that. And then just add that every partnership, uh, company to company, government to government, or mixture thereof that I've been involved in, it's uh, all sides bringing something to the table, contributing, and mutual benefits coming out. And that's more than just uh, giving money to something.
5: And yeah, I think to maybe set up the next panel, too, um, to salute some of uh, Jack's commercial instincts, two companies come together on a bid because they have complementary capabilities. So if you just look at the Vogel project, it's not well understood that I think Dusan built the reactor vessels and steam generators. We don't make those. This is a U.S. project. So it's obvious that we need some of those international capabilities in these kinds of partnerships, and that's, I would submit, Jack, driven by the private sector negotiating with itself. Now, granted, there were government involvements in terms of the regulatory uh, and uh, you know import kinds of considerations. That's a fair role for government. But when we go overseas now and look at this larger landscape, Alan, the challenge is going to be, if you just take Korea and the U.S. as one example... Which reactor gets built? Yeah. And so the the challenge between KEPCO, Dusan, and Westinghouse is: Do we build the APR 1400 in Saudi Arabia, or do we build the AP 1000? But I submit if the two teams got together and said, you know, there's 20 reactor bids out there, not just two reactors in Saudi Arabia. Why don't we kind of carve up the territory and we'll bid? 10 AP-1000s and 10 APR-1400s. So if the two start feeding each other in a larger arena, Mm. then I think that's a more fruitful partnership than trying to go head-to-head just to get two reactors in Saudi Arabia. Mm.
3: Um, Let's open things uh, up to the audience here. We have people passing out wireless mics. Uh so if anyone would like to to ask a question just please raise your hand and and then if you could stand up uh introduce yourself that would be great.
6: Uh gentlemen up front here.
0: <laughs> uh
6: Charles Hills uh, Eurasian Business Coalition um the US uh, Defense Department and each of the services army navy air force etc um are totally committed to Um, U.S. military base security from hurricanes, from disasters, from terrorism, etc., grid brownouts, what have you, by installing up to now renewable energy-type plants on site at these bases. Now, Andy suggested that why couldn't the government fund small modular reactors for exactly the same purpose? So my question to Jack is, wouldn't that fulfill – your criteria of national security reason for funding SMRs. Yes.
2: Yeah, so so I, I wouldn't be any more for government so so the, the, the need that you articulated to have secure energy for bases is a reasonable national security requirement. I would be no for no more for, however, defining that being met by solar panels than I would for nuclear reactors. Rather my approach would be the need is to have secure energy Figure out how you do it. And if as a result of that process the conclusion is a small modular reactor, then by all means build a small modular reactor. I would not pre-conclude, however, that it should be a small modular reactor just because that may be one way to meet that need. I would hope that it would be a small modular reactor. Like I said, I want to see these things get
6: built. The way the Army is doing it right now, they have this 20-year, uh, $7 billion um, on the contract out. And at the moment, there are four yeah. tracks, four technology tracks. Solar, photovoltaic, wind, um, biomass, um, and geothermal, and so they're they're pushing all
2: of these technologies uh, in parallel. So maybe SMRs could be the fifth track. I just no, I mean what what I would not do that. I think that what you just described, what they are doing, is trying to subsidize those energy sources. They're doing exactly what what I think might be being suggested here for nuclear. That the private sector won't do it. We'll make up a reason for government to do it, then we'll throw a bunch of money at it and government will do it. That's just not the way, that's just not my perspective. I do think, though, if as a matter of an analysis one determines that SMRs are the appropriate way to provide the thing that the government needs, then by all means, build an SMR. Absolutely. I just wouldn't pre-conclude that, nor would I have six tracks that look at six different types of energy sources. I don't, if they, if as a function of an open analysis they decide that, you know, Burning coal is the way to do it. Then burn coal. National security is the the the, the prime driver, not the, the 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 thing. I happen to think that SMRs would be a perfectly good and exciting way to provide that. I just wouldn't push my finger on that button. Again, the wrong thing to say. Wouldn't put push my thumb on that scale.
1: What? Some A couple bases that we've worked with at DOE were doing was just setting the parameters that they need, you know, the secure energy supply and then letting people come back and give, you know, whether it's a biodigester or whether it's something else or some combination of things without specifying then technology.
5: Yeah, I think to put one more wrapper on it, Charles, if the private sector is allowed to respond and the government is providing a purchase contract – that's going to mobilize investment as well. Mm-hmm. So that's what the new Nuclear Energy Leadership Act is taking a look at, is whether DOD could offer a 30-year offtake agreement as a way to encourage that private investment to come forward. Uh, Dr. Boyd here up in the middle, if you
3: could please introduce yourself.
7: My name is Derek Boyd. I'm a retired physicist. I was struck, very much by Jack Spencer's point about the stagnation which has been going on for decades and it seems to me in fact that this is a very important point because we have in fact been doing the same thing over and over again and to expect different results in the future from doing the same thing over again is absolutely crazy I mean it's the definition of insanity basically (laughs) (coughs) Um, so I, I think that We must recognize that it's not innovative ideas and enterprising small businesses or something that is going – is the solution to this. We have a big problem to solve back there that has been holding this thing in place for decades. Uh, Recently, I visited the Russell House office building to listen to a a talk about um, a new reactor project at Idaho. And I listened to that, and I said to myself, you know, the urgency behind this is lacking. In 25 years, this project may have a commercial impact. If this is our new pathway forward to fixing these things that Jack was talking about, we're on the wrong track. There has to be a much greater sense of urgency because the other people out there are not going to be sitting in their chairs waiting for us to catch up to get our national labs
0: mm-hmm.
7: with some sense of competition or commercial competition into their heads. And so I, I I bring forward these comments because I think actually Jack has a very important point. And he has a very important point too, but I don't see how he's going to get where he wants to go unless he solves the problems that Jack has been pointing out. We have a high quality audience today, I have yeah. to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the sense of urgency is lacking. I would agree. Yeah, I mean and uh it becomes urgent when, you know, there's an energy security or some other issue that comes up which we don't have at the moment.
3: Okay. Uh Jim up front here in the in the center.
8: Jim Johnston Connect USA. I guess I probably want to also chime in on Jack because I <laughs> and I want to make a point that I think he was trying to make but but uh, maybe I can throw it in a different uh, set of words. You know, we talk about first off multilateral uh, cooperation all this it's all goodness talk, but the bottom line is really it's economics of whether reactors make business sense. Hmm. And the problem is uh, Part of the problem with free trade and all these these great ideas is that it's not a level playing field. A Chinese reactor costs less than half of a U.S. reactor. It's because of labor cost. It's because of regulatory um, uh, depth. And it's also because maybe things like the environmental uh, aspects of it. So the critical issue is, and I've worked internationally. Uh, I've worked a couple different international agencies. I've worked for the NRC and DOE, et cetera, the problem is this. The U.S. has what we, we think of as being a gold standard for nuclear safety. It's only a gold standard because of its cost. It's not because it, it creates a higher level of safety. I mean, uh, safety exists in many different forms. But they, don't, they don't all cost the same. So the key issue, which Jack was, I think, trying to address, is the cost of regulation. That's what's driven us out of the marketplace. And and there are ways to reduce the cost of regulation, without reducing the level of safety. What we have is decades of building more and more and more regulations on top of old ones. We never get rid of the ones that are outdated. And a lot of these ones that we added on were just added on uh, sort of feel-good things. It was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. We'll add it on. And the utilities didn't fight this prior to 1996. We had a, a, a regulated uh, environment with basically uh, PUCs, basically uh, monopolies, And the utilities, every time that the NRC required something, the utilities, well, they argued lightly, but they ultimately went ahead with it because they would always get their investment back plus a 10% return on it. They made money by building more and more and more regulations. So over the years, we built this huge uh, monument, uh, you know, this huge mountain of regulations, and we haven't taken any steps to reduce that. And part of the problem is if you look for a solution is, it gets back to this thing that I think Jack was hinting at, which is the administrative state, this fourth branch of government, which basic it's unconstitutional, but it basically the NRC is the judge. They, they write the laws. They're the legislators in terms of writing regulations. They're the judge. They adjudicate uh, hearings, and they're also the enforcer, the, the the executive branch. And so maybe a step forward would be to try to break apart those functions within the NRC to create more checks and balances, give the industry, give the environment an opportunity to challenge things and and to actually put some pressure on the commission to backtrack on some of these regulations that it's built up over the years. That's what I've, I've... would try to suggest.
1: You're getting back to the point I think that Andy made at the beginning is no longer the same world where we have monopolies. I worked lots with auto industry over the years, and GM had a monopoly, so didn't need to uh, pare back or do anything else until there was that competition. But obviously, we're not leading that competition anymore, so we need to act differently.
5: Yeah. Well, the NRC has been attempting a modernization project uh, you know we're all skeptical about it That's and funny. cynical about it, but uh, we've got the boat turned somewhat in the right direction. When we built the last generation of reactors, though, we didn't place the funding burden as much on them as we do now with the ninety percent, ten percent. So I think I think the funding model has to be changed for first of a kind units. I think Jack makes a good point that. The regulatory uncertainty needs to be taken out in order to uh, mobilize private investment. If you got the banks in this room, it would be interesting for you to host, you know, a couple of banks on this question and have a negotiation with them, Jack. Say, okay, listen, we need $10 billion for these three projects. What's it going to take to get that $10 billion? Tell us what barriers to knock down, and we'll knock them down and have a negotiation. I I think then maybe we could get what Dr. Boyd is talking about, Break some new ground. Make mobilizing private investment the the end point in terms of what our goal is. Back to international partnerships, Alan. We can engage other governments in that process mm-hmm. because some of the partnerships that we seek involve private industry. It's not just government. You know, KEPCO is a, a private entity in some respects. And, and you know, to the, the last two comments –
2: the one element that you didn't mention is that that NRC machine you talk about—it's all lubricated with money, and it's the same problem that, that you pointed out, sir. That that there's an establishment who is paid with this process pays them. So um, you know, there's lot there's billions of dollars that have been spent over years. Someone's getting that money, and that that goes to strengthen the establishment. And the, we we have a the the incentive structure is very misaligned. To allow progress, rather the incentive structure basically is built to result in stasis, which is what we have. There's no better example of that than the nuclear waste issue, but really it's pervasive throughout right. the industry. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Okay. Uh, last uh, few questions before we gradually transition to the second panel, uh, Mr. Digman, Paul Dickman on the left
7: here.
9: Okay, well I'm gonna first I'm gonna make a statement, and then I'll then I really will ask a question. <laughs> Um, So uh, let me go back to the issue about NRC and regulation, and what I want to point out is is that basically everybody in the world follows the same process the NRC does when they they look at licensing. Everybody does a safety analysis report. and people who go to China, what they're going to find out is it's the NRC model. The big difference is there's no public hearings. There's no challenges there's no contentions issued, and they don't have NEPA, so that's why they have a very streamlined process if you look at it so if you want to go and change everything don't't don't look at don't look at the, the technical structure of licensing, look at all the add-ons that we've piled on, okay, so repeal NEPA I like it well yeah well, is that what you're saying I, I would join you okay um, <laughs> no, Paul is saying, give autocracy a chance <laughs> So let's go back to the the nine hundred pound gorilla, in the, which is the nuclear waste issue, because, you know, you've touched on it lightly, but I think there's a lot more here that needs to be stated as to what is what is doing to the U.S. industry right now and globally in terms of being of suppressing the opportunities to move forward with uh, with nuclear power.
2: God, it's my favorite issue. You know that. Um, Five first? Go first. <laughs> Go ahead, Jack. This is the most important issue. If we can fix everything else, if you don't fix this one, we will be in the same place. And my perspective on it um, is 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 this: um, the current system disincentivizes any sort of innovation. The result of that is not only do you lose innovation on technologies that can be brought to bear um, to 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 manage nuclear waste, but it totally flummoxes the innovation on the front end of the fuel cycle, which is what ultimately determines the waste that comes out. And that is critical to this. So we keep talking about government doing this or regulation doing that for SMRs. Until you connect the front end to the back end, until the private sector is responsible for the entire fuel cycle, I would argue that we will always have this problem. Um, the current system by – uh by putting the government in charge of it, you disincentivize anyone from doing anything because politicians see only downside in doing anything on nuclear waste because if they vote for something and, and a, a, a a train car flips over, now they're out of office. So they would just rather sit on site. Industry, and I love industry, and I, I don't – this is going to sound anti-industry. I don't hate industry. I hate the game that industry is forced to play. They're not incentivized to, to do anything with it because they get made whole when the government doesn't fulfill its legal obligations. Um. There everything disincentivizes progress on this, and the result of that is what we have right now. So this is the most fundamental question of all. Okay. Glad everyone agrees with that. <laughs>
5: open yucca. <laughs> yeah.
2: And open
5: yucca.
3: Perhaps a a, a final question from uh Sean here.
0: Good morning. Chris Bidwell from the Federation of American Scientists. My question goes to this, with, on the on the back end of of, of the nuclear cost cycle. Um, right now, uh, Fukushima's estimated the cleanup cost for Fukushima estimates are all over the place, but 100 billion is a is a number that gets tossed around. And yet, the coverage in the insurance industry for for that can, can max out at around 13, 14 billion. The United States and Price Anderson around the same. Uh, in incentivizing business. Going in the future and building more more nuclear plants in the future, who's going to make up that gap, or what ways can make up that gap? The insurance industry, when I talk to them, says, "Well, we don't want to. We're happy with the cap where it is. We can sell a policy that fits within that cap, or or sell a a combined policy." Who does the who does the the uh, the cleanup when something goes wrong? And this particular problem with with regards to Russia now, who's starting to look for for financial. uh,
2: Yeah. they I bond will question i think it's an I think it's a, an important issue. I, I would not I, I don't look at it as um, this happened in Japan, therefore it will happen here, this happened there. I think that um, the more uh, market based you are, the better you solve these problems. So that, uh, that what you just said may be true is not indicative of how the insurance industry may treat a future nuclear industry. Um, I think the market should take it where it takes us. I am not for, um, pulling Price Anderson out from under industry right now. I am for transitioning away from Price Anderson ultimately. Price Anderson was never meant to be a long term Supporter of commercial nuclear it was to, uh, to mitigate the risks with the early industry to support national security activities. So, um, it's become part of the fabric of American nuclear power, just like so many of these things that are problems. So I think that, um, it's a reasonable question to ask and that we need to figure out a reasonable way to transition out of it so we can, so that frankly the, the people, my, my view on all waste, whether it's nuclear or otherwise, um, if you spill it, you've got to clean it up.
1: In the case of Japan, you know, the government's basically bailed out TEPCO.
5: And and took took it over. I mean yep, seventy seven. Took it over it, they, yeah, had, to, had to be socialized in that position mm-hmm. because there's no way TEPCO could absorb yep. it on the balance sheet. The price Anderson and structure is interesting because mm-hmm. it has two devices for fending off moral hazard. It puts mm-hmm. industry in first loss position. So industry gets exposed and they go to the insurance markets to lay off some of that risk. Secondly, the Price-Anderson liability coverage is for off-site risk. The industry, the plant still absorbs the on-site risk and so Three Mile Island was an interesting case where the damage was confined to the site and so the utility absorbed that risk. So. There's a negotiation that's going on there between the public sector and private sector to fend off some of the moral hazard in the structure of Price-Anderson.
3: And to your latter comment about Russia, I think there's certainly some questions about the Russian capability to sustain the model that it has uh, promoted with a lot of its export projects. Um, In in Turkey, they were looking for other investors. Those investors came out, and I I think ultimately the government said that they would – uh still continue with the project but uh you know as as jack stated earlier uh you know we could there's certainly questions about the sustainability of that long term
2: so. and as it relates to one thing that we should learn from from I wouldn't normally compare Russia, and Japan. But in this case, I will. Because in both cases, those accidents were the result of government bureaucrats, in one case, taking full control of the situation, and in the other case, having too much control over the situation. Look, government's good at what government does, but it should stay out of the business of doing business. And when it gets involved, when politics intersects with business, bad outcomes happen. And sometimes those bad outcomes cost billions and billions of dollars. Okay. Okay.
3: Uh, Walter, let's, uh, maybe this is a good segue into so this the second the, uh, panel. A preview,
10: a
1: setup.
10: <laughs> <laughs> Walter has Rotary Capital. I left my copies of Adam Smith and Karl Marx in the car, so I can't.
2: <laughs> uh, we, can, we can probably get you the, the Smith one.
5: <laughs>
10: <laughs> I always read the other side. Um, good to
5: know.
10: I, I, it's, this is an interesting panel in, in, in so many ways, but one thing that, um Having spent several decades studying the military industrial complex and the energy markets, um, one lessons learned or model that I think is understudied or underappreciated in this country, um, is that when you look at how the government in its attempt to serve its function appropriately, um, works with the military, the private sector in supplying the marine to the military, um, the way that we sell military systems and weapon systems across the globe um, leads more than just economic outcomes, it leads to our leadership, global and security issues. I think the the nuclear energy or energy in general markets could be very analogous because I don't think people often understand the number of subsidies that our government provides to the military industrial complex. It's replete with <laughs> AIDS, parties, subsidies, cost of frails, competitions et cetera, to spread our weapon systems across the globe. Uh, and I think we could do somewhat. Th- we're not going to change that model in a long time, I don't think. Uh, so when you look at some of the inefficiencies in the marketplace, like the price carbon and environmental impacts, um, commons, if you will, and uh, some of the other challenges, I think, I think there's some some analogies for the energy markets that could be incorporated. It's not the government versus the private sector. It's There's plenty of resources in the private sector. How can government, the light hand of government, best mobilize the incentives of the private sector to provide those outcomes, in my mind? And I think nuclear is stuck as the worst example of this for good reasons, but it's stuck in this mire of things that are inefficient. Mm -hmm. And the private sector trying to bring with SMRs and advanced reactors, trying to pull a few of those out of the submarines running around the planet and bring them up on land. Um, but we, we in this great experiment for democracy, we have a problem competing with authoritarian and you know, other governments that can snap their fingers. And so while we preserve this experiment of ours on democracy, you know, we're going to face some real problems here in the next 20, 30 years if we can't figure out uh how to solve this gridlock kind of a problem, I think. But I would advocate on nuclear power, whether it's not no solar panels and not wind, but because of the issues of security, proliferation, the commons, safety, et cetera, that the window is going to close on nuclear power here shortly. So we should either just exit the game and get out of it because it may not be worth it, may not be sustainable. But I think if not, not looking at old technology, but looking at advanced reactors and SMRs, I think that's different. The whole market's going to change. And I think we should kind of study the way we do the military industrial complex as a model, at least as a bridge, you know, into the future. Very brief comments.
5: Well, we had this discussion, I think, with Ed McGinnis, uh, at Department of Energy, and when he went to these international meetings, he would use this analogy to some degree in reporting back what the customers want. So here's a private market model. What does the customer want? And what he said was the, the, the international customer tends to want a privately built engineered reactor with an American flag on it. They don't want a Chinese reactor. They want an American reactor privately built, backed up with our private uh, industry. Now, if we want to incorporate international partnerships to that, which I think we're going to have to do, witness Vogel, yeah. we couldn't build Vogel without Dusan and mm-hmm. – Company, Are we able to build Vogel with Doosan and company? Well, that's a great point. But the, the we are going ahead with it to whatever degree we are going ahead with it. Government was going to twist their arm until it falls off. Well, so the point is that project will get built. It will operate. We're seeing AP1000s operate in China. But in terms of the international partnership component of this whole panel, what was very interesting was the UAE deal. So the UAE deal—I'm bringing Korea in on this—was Kepco and Doosan, private industry. Kepco somewhat owned by the government, selling to a sovereign customer. This is Walter's model, yep. right? Where how we sell these units overseas to foreign customers, and what the Emir of UAE required is for the President of Korea, not just Kepco and Doosan, to sign the reactor. Mm-hmm signaling the commitment of the Korean people. So there are certain things that the customer demands that we have to be responsive to if we're going to use a market model.
2: And that is all, I would argue, is all because of the inefficiencies underlying the current nuclear industry, that if you had a stronger, more robust nuclear industry that was actually tethered to strong economics and strong market fundamentals, you wouldn't have those same sorts of things. But to the extent those things do exist – then, yeah, you, you 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 play the game that, that, that you're in. All that said, I come back to my point. We shouldn't be playing that game. We need to look at the underlying structures of the American nuclear industry that has prevented it from being what it should be so that we can go out compete with anyone. I totally disagree with your notion that we can't compete with communists and other dictatorial economies. We kick their butts in everything. Look outside the door. Our cities, our standards of living, our everything is better than theirs. This notion that somehow the Chinese and Russians are going to outcompete compete us for anything over any sustainable time, I just don't believe. Now, I may be proven wrong, but that's where my bet's going. Um, and again, if we think that nuclear energy is important into the future, I don't believe – and I do think that it is – I don't see how Russia and Chinese or whomever can keep building expensive big reactors – and it be sustainable. It will break. It will not only break them, but it will break th- those for whom they are building it. Um, let's figure out how to build them better, cheaper, and more awesome, and go compete on on, on those things. We should be um, building like like core and stuff, not the old Soviet clunkers that that that, that, that people don't want.
3: Okay, uh, to be continued on this discussion. Um, let's please uh, give our panel
2: panelists oh, there's a there's
3: hand, a panel, yeah. and there is another panel. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let me introduce Walter Howes, who's going to come up uh, and and introduce uh, the second panel. But let me introduce him first while uh, we transition to the second panel. Yeah. Um, so uh, Walter has uh, been a managing partner of Vertigree Capital. Uh, merchant banking firm, uh, and and, uh, since he left uh, USDOE in 2007, uh, he'll be moderating this panel. He's going to introduce the panelists, uh, and I believe uh, Mr. Paul Murphy, one of the panelists, will be kicking us off with a uh, a presentation. So, uh, Walter, uh, thank you so much for doing this, and I I look forward to hearing from from you and the rest of the panel. Uh, Why don't you
10: come on down, guys? uh good morning um, It's a great great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm afraid that this panel does not have the luxury of uh, 60,000 foot fireworks. We're going to come a little bit closer to ground level um, but uh, very, very much uh, embedded in the same in, in the same concepts here um, of trying to figure out how do we how does the globe deploy, nuclear power, uh, and what are some of the models that are successful and or less successful. Um, I would like to make just a couple introductory comments in context, partly from the last discussion and transition into this one. Um, the, uh, my background is mainly finance, uh, Wall Street, and private equity, and I had a few years where I kind of got lost in the hallways at DOE, trying to find my way out, and um uh, w- one of the things that I can say for sure right now, globally, is that the, this planet of ours is awash in capital. Trillions, depending on who you talk to, there might be 21, 22, 3 trillion dollars of capital that really doesn't have anywhere to go. It's earning half a percent, maybe 1 percent, maybe 3 percent if it's taking extreme risk. But after the financial crisis in 2000, 2007, 2008, um, you know things really changed, and we also have generated a phenomenal amount of capital around the planet. But right now, our risk allocation system is is still in flux, uh, and our our nuclear power business is stuck in the middle of that to a certain extent. Uh, and so the good news is there's trillions of dollars that would love to come play, and help facilitate this and other industries. Um, but governments and countries and markets have to allocate the incentives enough. Efficiently so that that capital could flow. And I would advocate the prior discussion and some of the debate about that discussion has really to do with how do we allocate those risks and those incentives. And that's really at the core of what this panel is talking about, where how do we structure transactions uh, to essentially allocate risk and incentive to create a successful project, in this case, nuclear power. Um, so uh, in between this panel... Uh, with with uh, scott and and Paul and ted uh, we have a world of v- vast experience in terms of this industry private sector public sector domestic international legal policy uh, finance um, so this this panel's ca- you know got a lot of resources that we can uh, bring to bear here so uh, we'll start off with the presentations and then uh, i think we have plenty of time here at the moment so some people are uh, going to use, not use PowerPoints. So I would say, uh, you know, maybe we can take questions uh, after each session for a little bit and then wrap up with, with questions afterwards. Um, but, but also I would like to make another point in terms of global supply of capital um, is an observation. If I go back literally to 1999, 2000, 2001, I happened to be at the Department of Energy, and then the, the, the COO, the number two at DOE was Dr. Arnie Winick's. And uh, because I was coming up out of Wall Street, uh, he mobilized the team and sent me around the planet to study um, how countries and their laboratories or, or their machines to generate science and innovation function. And his premise was in the U.S. they don't function very well. Uh, and uh, you know, some people here have served in government before I was there and some after. And uh, But at that point in time, in between sort of a Democratic-Republican transition and what was going on, uh, we went around the planet and studied Japan, Sweden, Germany, France, um, uh, Korea, Russia, China, in terms of what was the relationship between national laboratories, private laboratories, uh, and the government and private sector. So one of the classics is the Frunhofer model in Germany, where you cluster both private and public sector uh, labs, um, private sector industry, and you cycle people between all these things, cross-training. You didn't have everyone in their silos, or what do they call them today, centers of excellence, or silos, or whatever, where you're stuck. Um, And and anyway, we, we worked for a while on what should the U.S. do, and our laboratory system is horrendously expensive, burdensome, regulated, kind of like the nuclear side. So it made it very hard... To escape from the Manhattan model. Much of that came up out of the Manhattan model, driven by security, driven by World War II, making the atomic bomb. Our laboratories were spread out diverse, and then they were cloaked in security, a very heavy expense structure. We still have not escaped that burden. So, you know, I'm not trying to go all the way towards Adam Smith and everything solved by a free market, but I'm saying there is certainly some truth to the fact that the government can be very inefficient and not the best allocator of resources. But particularly in this particular sector, this is not making tennis shoes. We're making reactors here. Um, this is tough. You know, we're trying to escape all that. But the conclusion that Ernie Moniz came to back in 1999 uh, when, we, when we submitted our, you know, five three-ring binders, uh, he went right to the conclusion. And he The two things he asked for right away was he said, this is DOE, remember, he said, steal me a DARPA. So go over to DOD and steal me the DARPA, which is now ARPA-E, to see, you know, to fund the very early part of research and technology, the most critical pieces um, that the private sector wasn't doing, and then solve me a problem with the Valley of Death for Capital, um, which turned out to be the loan program. Now, he's a physicist. He's a mathematician, you know, and he kind of he <clears> got <throat> it right away, uh, it's, and it's taken it until, you know, whatever it took until 2006 to get those things started. But I would advocate in that balance between public and private, ARPA-E, as an as a early investor in venture capital for technologies and the loan program helping to solve the problem of capital markets uh, and their challenge with not investing $10 million, but investing a billion, which is what you need for a new reactor in the private sector. Um, that's what the loan program helps, bringing the government's balance sheet but not using government management techniques. Relying on the private sector to execute, but bringing the balance sheet uh, to bear, is kind of, I think, a win-win of an example of a tool that's the best of both worlds. Um, so anyway, open for debate. So uh, why don't I step down now, and we'll, we'll get into uh, into the the conversations. Um, Scott, uh, Scott Campbell's going to go uh, first, and uh, then we'll have uh, Paul, and then uh, and then Ted.
11: Thank you, Walter, and um, congratulations to the Heritage Foundation, to Gabby and Tasakawa for putting together a very timely program. This morning was lively and interesting. Uh, I, don't know, I think Jack left. He's back in his cage now. So, But
10: uh,
11: <laughs> but uh, made some very good points, and I actually agree with him on a lot. Um, I'd like to – we talked a lot in the uh, first session about um, about large reactors, light water reactors, about 40-year-old technology, fifty year old technology that the – Chinese are marching forward with. I'd like to change the subject a little bit and talk about small modular fast reactors, uh, which I think are the truly disruptive technology that will be the next big thing. And I think that's where the future is, where it lies for the United States, a technology that can leapfrog the old technology that's being pirated or copied or improvised by the Chinese and the Russians uh, and make a big difference in the world for a lot of the reasons they discussed earlier. Small, fast reactors, factory manufactured, you know, we tend to talk constantly about construction on these huge sites and billions of dollars in cost overruns, they're factory manufactured, they're transportable on trains and barges, they are distributed power, many countries don't have the, can't even afford the grid, uh, let alone a huge, huge, huge reactor. They're a carbon-free energy source. We don't talk as much about that as we used to until the recent report from the U.N., uh, but we have to come up with a carbon-free energy source that works and provides adequate resources. They're affordable, probably the most important thing. It's all about the market. It's all about the economics. They're affordable. I know the ARC-100 that I've been working on uh, um, will cost uh, eventually about $350 million per unit for 100-megawatt unit. That is not $12 billion plus COVID cost overruns and delays. It's not the same amount of energy, but it's a lot, and it can be distributed around the country around the country. There's a 20 year fuel cartridge. it's proliferation resistant. You can't make you can't make weapons out of out of the fuel. it does not produce large quantities of waste. It's walk away safe, it's buried underground with a very small um, security perimeter. And it's a proven technology, uh, based on 30 years of operating experience at INL, uh, with the EBR2. So, uh, the government did invest money in this, about over a billion dollars or so, um, many years ago, uh, but it's been a proven technology and it's ready to go. It's time for commercialization. So, and of course it solves the problems of Fukushima. It's walk away safe. And of Westinghouse, know, it's not terribly expensive. It's affordable. Of course, um, there's also the factor of the market and the, there's an enormous global market out there for affordable distributed power systems. You'll find that in developed countries that are abandoning uh, coal plants or with large nuclear plants in their life. We found that in, to be the case in uh, New Brunswick in Canada where our uh, nuclear is uh, pioneering a, a program there and hopes to build a, a first reactor at uh, Point La Prue. Uh And you, there's also developing countries. Um, I know in over the years that the OECD and others have had, uh, the IEA has had different conferences that 40 or 50, sometimes 60 to 80 countries show up interested in getting uh, some kind of a small, affordable reactor. Uh, they can't afford a grid. They can't afford a pipeline or offloading facility for natural gas, but they could afford a $350 million, $500 million, 100-megawatt uh, unit uh, that's distributed. Um, Other countries like India, which are building big big reactors, of course, uh, also have that problem. They've got, I think it's 640,000 towns and villages without any electricity or lights, and that's not going to be resolved by uh, huge uh, operations, big light water reactors. It really needs distributed power. So why haven't um, the 55 to 10 now leading uh, Uh, Small, fast reactor companies in the United States, and there's others around the world, but particularly in the United States, why haven't they taken off yet? And we've talked a little bit about that, but mainly it's lack of capital, lack of investment. Uh, And combined with and related to a crushing regulatory regime at the NRC. Um, I remember when um, some years ago in 2007 when uh, Don Wolf and I started uh, Advanced um, Reactor Concepts, we uh, made a presentation with Paul Robinson, the former director of the NAX3 Labs at Sandia, uh, to uh, to Lockheed Martin about this new concept, and uh, and borrowing from the older one. And he said, uh, after it's all over, the CEO took us aside and said, "This is brilliant. This is fantastic. This is what we need to do." I thought, really. This is great. And they said, uh, but we don't do startups. So if you could just get this done, get a license and everything, then we'll come in and buy you. So see you later, right? And so here we are now, and uh, we're finally uh, getting some partners in. We're partnered with GE, and we're partnering with uh, IHI, and we hope that uh, more capital will come coming our way. It's been an expensive uh, proposition. But what we've been suffering through is what Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School became famous for, his book The Innovator's Dilemma and all the other books that spun out of that. Uh, startups uh, don't, uh, don't match the economic criteria of large corporations. I remember, IBM turns down the laptop because it will never go anywhere. The Western Union dismisses Alexander Bell's telephone as a mere toy. Uh, so the problem is it's that, yeah, how do you get through that, that valley of death? and so you go to the venture capital firms but they want to see capital turn around they want a liquidity event in 3 to 5 years and we're talking 7 9 or 10 years optimistically uh, uh so it's very very difficult so many of these companies have been caught in the uh uh in the valley of death uh, we're starting to come out of it, looks like um i've been there since 2007 uh, but we're seeing a lot of interest but uh nobody likes to go first right um, so the organizers today, I think, have seen the need uh, for um, multinational partnerships, uh, because when you think about even a small modular reactors manufacturing them and distributing them around the world, there are a lot of capabilities, <clears throat> a lot of activities, uh, a lot, lot of industrial processes that aren't all in one place. And so uh, uh, that's true. Uh, with there's there's opportunities in Japan, there's opportunities in Korea and the United States to build different parts. It can be assembled almost anywhere and shipped around the world, but we really need a multinational um, uh, organization to do that, partnerships to do that. So let me just talk a couple minutes about models for multinational partnerships. I think we must first re- recognize that we have entered a new era where, uh, uh, where the old models of collaboration, you know, the, uh, the big long-term government scientific project, uh, uh, giant government funding programs, uh, loan guarantees uh, for big nuclear power. Uh, those are kind of oh they're over in the United States. That's just that's just not go, going anywhere. Um, we shouldn't count on it. Uh, this is the old this is the old nuclear energy era, and we're entering a second nuclear energy era, which is going to be driven by economics and innovation, and that's where the United States has its strength and where we should play. Uh, now the, these programs are over not because uh, they were a good program for their time, but because of technology, uh, global markets, competition. Demand, uh, for less financially risky, smaller, affordable, waste free distributed power, fast reactors, uh, I would argue is upon us. The times have clearly changed. And whenever we, I get in these panels or wait in these meetings to discuss this thing, we always have this, this dichotomy between the old, the big nuclear power plants and the small guys. And the small guys are finally being heard a little better, but I think they, they remain the future. And I think the, the big systems are going to have a role to play. And we shouldn't, we're not abandoning them or quitting them, but I think the real opportunity is particularly going to compete with China, as you've seen on these maps. Uh, you're going to need to do it with something new and something dramatic and something affordable. The, the new model might be called a, an SMR commercialization consortium model. Basically, a multinational corporation of private companies or pub, public-private partnership working together, bringing capital, uh, expertise, um, uh, Capabilities for design, licensing, marketing, supply chain process—all that goes into into this sort of thing uh, together. And uh, so, like we said, I think last panel said that if you can match up the capabilities, you really have something. What role does government have to play? It doesn't have to play any role at all. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, in case of—I uh, know Japan pretty well, I know a little bit about Korea—but in the case of Japan, for example, the government uh, is very much involved in thinking, planning about the future of nuclear power. Um, and so government needs to at least provide many needs to at least provide some some administrative guidance, as they say, uh, to make the, the big corporations uh, in Japan, which uh, uh, are not big risk takers in the beginning, uh, to step up and to, to work with smaller companies. There are terrific business opportunities. if you believe in this, uh, there's a host of very good companies uh, out there right now uh, moving through the process. Of course, they're not going to the gold so-called gold standard of the NRC. Uh, they're going to Canada. And there's no reason they couldn't go to Japan or to Korea, for that matter, uh, for expedited, entrepreneurially sensitive, uh, affordable uh, regulatory uh, reviews. Um, Canada is going is to make real marks themselves uh, by allowing a vendor review up front that, that de-risk the project and then and then allows you to bring in uh, and do the final final work uh, with larger investors. Uh, the cost of something like this in the front end with Canada is $30 to $50 million to 50000000 dollars um, companies going to get to NRC are spending billions and aren't getting anywhere so uh, so they've got something there and we ought to take the same. in fact when I was uh, after, the, um, after the president took president Trump took over the white House I was invited over to have lunch and uh, with the osGp folks and Michael Krastios was in charge at that time he he was the deputy a deputy now and he said he said I want to talk about arc the company you and Don wolf put together and and I said um, well, what do you want to have in mind he said well Said, uh, "You see, you all are the poster child of what's wrong with the, with the NRC with regulations. Company it's oppressive, it's expensive, it's ridiculously expensive. It snuffs out all entrepreneurship, all risk taking. Uh, just too expensive. And so we want to we want to reform that. And I said, well, amen and good luck.' So we'll see see how, how far they get with that. Um, but if we want to if we want to compete in this world of smaller, faster reactors, uh, that needs to be changed. And we could have a whole program on, on the NRC." Ought to, be, uh, ought to be changed, and, and now some of the incentives for costing us more money could be removed from the process. Um, the new consortium, uh, of course, would have to have an accessible, ready, affordable uh, licensing process, not the NRC, of course, uh, but uh, uh, but clearly Canada works, and maybe maybe even um, uh, we could try we could try uh, our uh, Japan or or Korea. Someone who knows more about that than I do might might weigh in. Um, but if we do all these things. Um, then U.S., Japan, and Korea private companies in partnership with one another, maybe with some government assistance, but not necessarily. Uh, then we might write write the next chapter. We might actually leapfrog the, the old technology that China is developing and building their their uh, their One Belt One Road uh, uh, dominion over the over the over the sea lanes and the and the, and the, and the most of the most of the world. We might be able to counter some of that with all the national security aspects that are associated with it. But as far as a working uh, model, uh, it needs to be we need to see these large and mostly large Japanese companies, I would hope, and Korean companies partner up with these smaller uh, startups that are going to make history and help them get it done quickly so we maintain our innovative lead and can uh, get a return to to leadership in nuclear power. Thank you.
10: Questions? Could you? I, I, quite, I didn't quite catch the point on the ACD. They were saying the problem was that the, the NRC was bulky and cumbersome. But they were ascribing
11: – the uh, OSTP. It was Office of Science and Technology Policy, at the right. White House, and they were basically saying it's uh, it's, it's too expensive uh, for uh, too expensive for uh, startups, uh, much too expensive for startups, and. Uh, uh, and the incentive is to uh, is to come up with costly uh, studies and that sort of thing over the years, which makes it more and more expensive to uh, to do these things. And of course, that pays into the almost a conflict ventures pays into the uh, pays into the, the regulatory agency, so that they land up with a, uh, with a growing inter- enterprise that they need just a leaner, faster, quicker. And of course, these these reactors they really aren't for the United States right now. We, and maybe they are on military bases. Maybe they are in Alaska. Uh But they're really for the developing world and for small other countries, the smaller menus, People don't have grids. People who who don't have a lot of electricity, and you don't have that kind of money to to spend. Just look at the Turkish situation. and give you a good example of of uh, why this is not the future.
10: Indeed. So there were there were no concrete proposals for reform well, that I came th- out of the.
11: I did well. Not on our lunch. <laughs> uh, it was a nice lunch, so, But I mean, the the intent was there. And it was supposed to be part of the initiative that that they've been doing on energy and nuclear. And they put nuclear right up in the very beginning of their of their the program, but it remains to be seen. I mean, there have been a few other things going on apparently.
10: Yes, so, <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Uh, I just have a quick one. So great presentation,
8: but so why don't you go outside the country where you can get it built and licensed quickly? We are. Well, I mean, you talked about Canada. We're going to. Uh, you- it sounds as if you can't get the venture capital right. if you're going out of the country. Is that
11: No, that's it's not true. true. In fact, uh, the reason we couldn't get the capital is because we wanted to do it in the country. And everybody who looked at it, we, we came very close to Kleiner Perkins and others getting a whole lot of money. And then when they did their review of what it would take to the, to the NRC, they backed off and said, we can't, we can't wait that long. And so, uh, to be clear, what we're doing is we're going to Canada. We're already in our review process. We're going to go through our vendor review. That will be will be through in two years. Uh, not, not 15 or 10 years and then we'll uh, hopefully we'll have the strategics involved uh, that'll come in and help us uh, with the final stage which is about 300 million and after that you start building and you whoever gets first in this market is going be is going to be in a good good shape. it's going to be a big deal. So it's a very exciting proposition. There are other companies trying to do the same thing and I encourage all of us to do the same but we, we just need more capital and it's just like um, like I saying you know in the, in the innovators dilemma, you know the big companies they just doesn't fit their, their their risk criteria. And so it and doesn't fit the venture capitals because it's too, too, a little too long. And, and so who do you go to? And there you are in the Valley of Death. So, uh, and I'm arguing it should be, and we do have IHI's now, Japanese uh, manufacturers now working with us and may invest. Uh, GE is partnering with us and giving us $50 million in IP. Um, we've got all our, all everything uh, has been now um, uh, patented. Uh, so we're on our way, and so are other good companies. Yeah, I'm voting for the, the American ones, not so much Gates's uh, Chinese experiment. I'd like to see it done, done with uh, with one of our partners in this part of the world.
10: Okay. Just a real quick comment on this, as far as to follow. Well, Andy and you know, I made a, a ten-year study of capital flows into the nuclear power business, and um, just just to be, we, we often throw these terms around, but I think the theme that you're getting here is um, there is no venture capital in this industry for definitional reasons. The venture capital market wants a three- to five-year turnaround, 20- to 40% returns, uh, are willing to take extreme risk, but but uh, hate government uh, exposure. So the venture capital market does not exist in this country for nuclear. It's just out there. Like at the other end, the commercial lending market does not exist for this marketplace. In between, you've got – um, extremely wealthy individuals, extremely wealthy families, industrial capital, mm-hmm. um, private equity at some kind, to some extent, and then you have federal government loan guarantees. Uh that was, That's it. That is the entire range of capital available here. And the loan, the federal go- loan guarantee. I think I would, would completely agree with, uh, with Scott. There's never going to be another federal loan guarantee, I don't think, for a. Traditional thousand megawatt U.S. nuclear plant built in the United States because it's only four, the three or four years away before we're going to have an advanced reactor or an SMR and they're probably not going to build a the traditional one anyway. Other, and, other than Bella which I don't think is going to get built.
11: It's interesting. It is nuclear and therefore government, all governments are going to be involved somehow, some with a heavier hand the, right. than, than others. Um, but if you look at the, the business decision making model in Japan, for example, uh, very hierarchical, uh, very, very staged, uh, very careful, um, very systematic. Um, that's not a startup, uh, type of investment. And so, um, the same thing we have, we have, with Lockheed Martin when they said, you know, call us when you're, when you get this done. We're really excited about it. Well done. Um, I think we're, we've encountered some of that in Japan, too. But Japan is waking up, too. They see there's an opportunity there that, it, that it has also sorts of national security implications. As well for them, uh, it's important to Asia. It's important for U.S.-Japan cooperation. So they're starting to say, "Wait a minute, maybe we need to help these people in the early stages, and not just sit and wait and see." And that's what uh, you know. What I keep, what I keep saying.
10: Everybody wants the third of a kind. So why don't we stop there and go and go to Paul? We'll come back again at the end for questions to catch up. So Paul Murphy,
12: thanks, Walter. Um, thanks to our hosts uh, for setting this up. Um, I'm going to really talk about. Uh, some lessons learned from the Baraka NPP. Um, at my former firm, we were, um, counsel to the lenders, so Korea Exim, US Exim, and the commercial banks. And I think there are a lot of good lessons there about, uh, the value of cooperation, which is the underlying theme of these events. So when you look at Baraka, you know, here's just an overview for those that don't know much about the project, but, um, I'll just draw a few points out of this. The key is that, you know, effectively you had a sovereign government saying we want to do nuclear and we're going to make it happen. Ultimately they teamed up with a, an export partner who said we really want to make this happen. So even though the deal was competitively bid, um, underneath it all was a commitment between the two governments to see the deal through. There was a government-to-government aspect to all of this. And if you see the other deals that have flown between uh, – that have, have flowed between Korea and the UAE, you will see it wasn't just about a nuclear deal. Um, it it goes into other things. Um, you had a host country with lack of national experience. You had a host country that took a very aggressive view in dealing with the problem that when you say nuclear in the Middle East in the same paragraph, people start to get nervous. Um, and they proactively managed that. Um, and there was always this sense of knowing that they were in the spotlight and, and also the idea of reputational risk. And that will translate into some of my comments about the financing. But, you know, when, I don't know what happened to the formatting here, but we're losing some headings. So, sorry about this. Hopefully the final slides will have that. Um, but, you know, this started out, there was, there was a strong U.S. presence in the deal early on with their, their initial advisors. Um, but when you look at the final bidding teams, and again, apologies for the formatting here, um, you know, you had Korea, you effectively had Japan, and you had France. The U.S. didn't even make the final cut in terms of, of reactor design. And ultimately, the Koreans won. Interestingly, back in 2009, the Chinese were nowhere to be found, which is really interesting when you consider where we are today. And the Russians, you know, the the urban legend story was that the UAE was advised if you don't want the, if you don't want a Russian reactor, don't let them be in the final bidding group because if they're there, they'll win. So um, the Russians never made the final cut. And you know, again, you can choose to believe what you want on that front. But um, when you look at the final deal, um, you look at the size of the, deals, the deal as a four unit deal. Um, plus fuel and operating services um, at the end of the day under the original structure you had 10 billion dollars of export credit finance coming from the Koreans and 2 billion was committed from US Exim so you had 12 billion of export credit financing for a country that you know doesn't exactly need external financing when you come right down to it so that was that was quite instructive but what it was is it was a package deal You had this sort of Korea Inc model that drove the deal from the get-go. And, you know, it was interesting at the time when you look at the final bidders, uh, the Koreans, I think everybody knew were going to be the cheapest, but I don't think a lot of people thought they would actually win because they'd never exported anything out of Korea. Yet they did win. And, you know, one of the reasons that was very telling was this group had worked together in Korea steadily building the Korean nuclear program, and also some of these companies had executed major projects in the Middle East and specifically the UAE, so they knew the area very well. Um, but, you know, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself was, you know, when you go back to the EPC contract, as I pointed out in the, fi- in the prior slides, the EPC contract based on publicly reported information was $20 billion, so let's just go with that, Um But you look at Kepco's market capitalization, and that's the whole market cap of the company, and, you know, the company's uh, gone down in value since then. Moreover, you had Korea Exxon put 10 billion on the table, and they had never come close to doing a deal of that size. So, you know, you look at and say, how could Korea do this over and over again? The answer is they couldn't. And so you get right into a conversation very quickly about, the need for for international cooperation because the Koreans could not have replicated that deal over and over again what's interesting is that you know the deal was awarded in December of 2009 the Koreans since then have not signed up another deal and the view at the time was that this would be their export strategy one of the the great pillars of of their their, their export platform. And, you know, the market has not borne that out. But, but right away you would say, well, how many of these deals could they have done over and over again? And so you start saying, well, what are the benefits of having multiple participants? Well, the first one you get right out of the box is, is what I'm alluding to is this idea of it's an additional source of capital. If you can get multiple export credit agencies financing a deal, obviously you're sourcing capital from a lot of different places. That helps the deal. Um, the second thing that I think was very instructive was sort of the geopolitical realities behind the UAE project. And when it was announced after the Koreans won that there was this 10 billion of export finance coming out of Korea, people started to wonder in, inside of Korea, what is that exactly about? And so, you know, in the ECA process of, of concluding the financing documentation, there's a diligence process that goes with it. And if you're an export credit agency and your mission in life is to support exports from your country, and this is the biggest deal that your country's ever done, the cynic might say, well, of course you're going to say it's a good deal. What else would you possibly say? What other choice do you have? And so the fact that US Exxon was in the deal um, created political cover both for the Koreans and for the UAE. Because, if again, if if KXM says to its stakeholders, yes, we think it's a good deal, the cynic would say, of course, we're not surprised by that. But if they can then point and say USXM also looked at this deal and they think it's a good deal, that creates stability for the deal. It creates another flag that's supporting the deal from the UAE's perspective, remembering, again, the geopolitical issues of being a nuclear program in the Middle East. So you start getting this momentum behind the deal and remember too that there was a commercial bank tranche and the way the deal was structured is they let the ECAs kind of negotiate the financing documentation and then come at the end, ask some questions and then sign up. Well, if you're a commercial bank, you're not going to trust the the main export credit agency, in this case the Koreans because – Again, you sit there and say, are they really going to scrutinize the deal that hard? But now having two ECAs bless the deal, one of which could walk from the deal if need be, and ultimately they did, Um, that, again, is a source of comfort for the financing community to see two sovereign entities supporting the deal. And so what you had was – an enhancement of the diligence process because you had two sovereigns with different agendas looking at the deal. You also had this reputational risk coverage by having multiple flags in the deal that helped support additional financing and provide political cover for the deal. So you can talk about the base deal, the $20 billion for the EPC and the fuel and all that stuff, but you have to recognize that these are – geopolitical deals. This is not selling refrigerators. This is not selling cars. And to think that the market is just going to get this right is just lunacy. Um, it's, it, it's not a market-driven process, nor will it ever be. And so you're, you're looking at the geopolitics of the situation. You're looking at sovereign entities. You're looking at you know a tremendous challenge in trying to finance these projects on the front end. And having ECAs in this is a very good thing. Well, if you want to export credit finance, what do you need? You need national content. So that Korea Inc. model would never be able to bring in USXM unless there was effectively $2 billion of content coming from Westinghouse in the deal. So you already see for a variety of reasons why if you merge content and structure, not only you can source additional financing, you get a lot of intangible benefits to the project. But it creates a reason for cooperation going forward as well, especially when you get capacity issues of what the Koreans could do or could not do long-term trying to replicate this model. So the current and future state of things, um, where are we? Um, And a lot has been said on this already. The Russians and the Chinese are dominating the market right now. It's state-owned entities driving things forward. It's government-to-government deals. And where the rubber hits the road is not on who has the best technology but who can bring financing to the deal – um, right now, USXM isn't in the game, so that creates unique problems for the United States because we, they can lend ten million dollars, and that's with an M, not a B, and that doesn't get you very far in the nuclear space. Um, you know, when you look at the competitive landscape, the Russian offering, which we've heard a lot about, it's pervasive. They're selling everything. They're packaging it sort of in a soup-to-nuts fashion. I can do everything. They're cornering the market and they're hedging their bets because they don't have all the financing that they've promised. They can't support it from a supply chain or a talent perspective, but they're making a bet saying that all these deals aren't going to go forward at the same time. So we'll sign them all up and then we'll let it play out. And so far it's quite brilliant and it's working. You know, when you look at these deals, and this is probably hard to see, but you can look at the size of the financing that they're providing, not only in terms of the quantum, but in the rate and the tenor, and that's very powerful. So you look at what they're offering everywhere and you say, well, of course the Russian economy can't support that, but it doesn't have to because all these deals aren't moving at the same pace. Um, China, s- state-owned entity model again, um, Financing, as was mentioned before, it's a quid pro quo type system. You look at how they sort of, you know, abused the UK government and the deal they negotiated to get additional sites and reactors, and they tried to to roll out the same model in Argentina. They're playing hardball, just that the Russians are, but a di- in a different way. It all fits into the Belt and Road structure. You know, you, you have debt dependency concerns. And you know, I think they're looking at it in a more commercial fashion, maybe than the Russians. The Russians, it's maybe a little more upfront geopolitical diplomacy through these nuclear projects. But the Chinese are doing it too. And while the Russians have done more of it, the Chinese are coming on quickly. And you see, they've done it in Pakistan. I don't think most people care what's happening in Pakistan. We're now see U.S. vendors moaning that they're not doing deals in Pakistan, but but. What they've done in the UK is is pretty amazing. You know, all of us grew up in the Cold War era. The fact that you would have a Chinese nuclear reactor in the UK, you know, twenty years ago would be an unfathomable concept. Uh yet it's happening. So, you know, the world is changing and the Chinese are playing a very effective game. How do we assess this? The role of government's key and it can take a lot of different roles. I mean, what's happening in these deals, you know, we say that financing is the determining factor, which it is but what's happening is these are g to g deals where yes it's about the nuclear reactor and the nuclear project but the russians the chinese the french the koreans even the japanese are stringing together multiple deals across multiple sectors so you know to expect westinghouse to try and compete on its own it's just never going to work Um, If if we want U.S. reactors to be successful, it has to be at a government-to-government level. Yes, there's a commercial piece to it. Of course there is. But at the end of the day, unless we make this more about the bilateral relationship and about all the various things that the United States can offer inside and outside of nuclear transactions – We're not going to match what the Russians and the Chinese do. On the financing side, if the Chinese and the Russians want to go low, we cannot probably get to where they can in terms of the tenor of the loans and the rate of the loans. Um, Our companies are never going to be state-owned entities. So it's not an apples-to-apples type discussion. The question is, well, what else can we do? to win and have a true win strategy that says, well, okay, on the financing side, we're going to get close. We're never going to give you maybe the best deal. But when we throw everything else along with it, then we overwhelm them because of the geopolitics and the strength of the bilateral relationship and our labs and our universities and our regulatory cooperation and all these things. And I think this package deal idea is is really – what it's about. This is not a sector where you have free and open competition. It's not going to be that anytime soon. So to try and develop a strategy based on free and open competition is destined to fail. So it's got to be industry and government together, but you know, industry cannot aggregate all the things that the United States can put on the table, military cooperation being one of them. Um, So you need government industry working together. Industry has certain burdens, but I think government does as well. So just in conclusion, I think you know what can we do? Um, you got to get USX and back in the game. Um, you know the Build Act is is on the president's desk for signature. That's a, that's a hugely important tool. Um, we need to get into these countries early, provide them with early stage assistance as. as was just mentioned when you look at the SMR and advanced reactor market and where it can really make transformative change for the world It's in the developing world. You know, we can do a lot of things to help these countries well before it's time to do the actual nuclear deal. Um, I mentioned the packaging. I mentioned the, the bit about bilateral deals. And, you know, when you look at how others are playing hardball, we have to play hardball too. You know, back in 2008 when the deal for India was cut, you know unfortunately it hasn 't worked out the way people had hoped that would probably be another good seminar to have and discuss. But at the time, it was a quid pro quo type negotiation with the Indian government, and it worked you know in terms of getting two sites for at least six units on each site for g e and westinghouse and it reflects that we have to build strategies where industry and government work together. When you look at where there's a focus now, we're clearly focused on what, the, what Saudi Arabia is going to do. But when you look at the SMR and advanced reactor space, if we really see that as sort of leapfrogging us ahead because large reactors might be too tough and, and we can debate that, that, that assumption, but if we're trying to leapfrog ahead, then – Again, just relying on the market. You know, if Tanzania calls up tomorrow and says, hey, I like um, one of your reactors, that's fine. But then you get into a question very quickly of who's going to pay for it and how. And then a lot of things get into that beyond just, you know, export credit financing. It's about how the programs are set up and how can we maybe fast track these countries forward. So – Remember, this is the unique asset class. The safety regulator, the regulator—say that five times fast—is unlike anything else um, in in any industry, including power. Um, development risk is the challenge. Financial modeling fails because when you look at large reactors, that the new ones will run for—you know—they get licensed for sixty years. They'll probably run for a hundred. Um, economic modeling falls apart after 30 years. So logically we know in year 30 in a day that this is a very valuable asset, but your financial model says I don't care. So our models break down. We have intangibles when you talk about clean energy, energy security, energy diversity that don't fit into – Financial models. There's no number you plug in to your your decision, and so you look at macro issues that mean nothing for individual investors or for the project become very important for countries. And somehow you've got to you bring those two together. Um, we need champions. Um, the champions in Russia and China are the heads of state um, and France and maybe Japan and, well, not so much in Korea right now, depending on whether it's inside Korea or outside, but we need champions at the highest levels. Um, you know, we saw the pictures from the early presentation. That That's real. And it's really a discussion of I, Russia, will help you, country X, have the, all this happen. That's the dialogue that goes. And so we have to understand the competitive environment. We can't talk about what we would like it to be Or what it aspires to be or what we, you know, intellectually debate it should be. It's what it is and to when you have to base your strategy on what's going on. And, you know, in the end of the day, we have to remember that nuclear deals are not about Westinghouse's balance sheet. They're about geopolitics and it's about long-term bilateral relationships across multiple sectors And the reality is if if we sit there and say – we look at a situation like Saudi Arabia and we sit there and say if the primary goal is to make sure we don't have a Russian or a Chinese reactor there, then everything we do has to align to achieve that goal. That's not that other things aren't important. Non-proliferation is, of course, important. But what's the number one issue and how can we align ourselves to achieve the number one issue? And I think that's – everything else starts to fall into line and get a lot clearer when you think of it in those terms. Thank you very much.
10: Very good. Um, in terms of timing, why don't we go ahead and go to Ted, and then we'll come back to questions uh, for, for the whole panel.
13: Okay. Thank you, Walter. And and thanks, Alan and Katie, for including me on the impressive agenda you organized for today. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here with uh, Walter and Scott and Paul. I... Um, I work on supplier and trade issues at the Nuclear Energy Institute, the policy organization for the nuclear industry. So I spend a lot of time with our uh, supplier members uh, talking about their opportunities and challenges in the market, and for them that is increasingly the global market. Um, So I'll try to bring that perspective in some short remarks, which will be short because I I think – uh, Paul uh, and, and Scott, too, have covered a lot of what I would, would have uh, said, so I won't repeat it. Um, I'll say a few remarks just about the, the U.S. model in the global market and what that implies for international partnerships. Um, and then I'll say some other words about how we can become uh, more viable uh, as a partner, and as a supplier in the global market, and then we can go to questions. Uh, first, um, I, you know, I think we, it's been noted several times, but I just wanted to, to point out uh, very explicitly that we, we have a very different approach here. We we are not uh, – our industry is not a consolidated, integrated, comprehensive entity like you can find in, in Russia, in China, um, significantly – Significant degree in France and and other places that have a much greater level of state support, and that has not kept us from being competitive. But it's also important to note that that governments necessarily have a role in in this international market. Uh, Jack mentioned on the last panel that uh, Admiral Rickover uh, made a, a des- decision on national security basis to. Uh, Stand up, establish a a nuclear, a commercial nuclear industry to give the same industrial base necessary for a nuclear navy. Uh, At around that time, uh, similar decisions were made about how to make the world safe uh, for nuclear power, and you know the atoms for peace formula was was um, introduced, and 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 that necessarily means. Government involvement um, in bilateral agreements in, uh, in controlling exports, and to you know a, a significant degree, the world's followed our leadership there. But unlike in the 50s, you know we're not the dominant supplier to the global market anymore. There's a lot of other suppliers. And nonetheless, we have continued to add new uh, requirements in bilateral agreements and export controls and, and, and even limitations on on financing and other uh, key elements to, to competing, um, and so I'll come to that in, in a moment. But uh, as far as international partnerships go, I, I think one of the greatest assets that our industry does have um, is it's uh, the – the innovation and the willingness to to share technology, and to partner with countries that have not uh, possessed and are seeking to develop the expertise to build and operate nuclear power, and we we've demonstrated that uh, you know, first in Japan and in Korea, and in, in in Europe, and and everywhere there is uh, nuclear power outside the. You know the former state, the states of the former Soviet Union, and this is an has an enduring appeal. It it shows uh, new customers such as Saudi Arabia that we're very capable of uh, standing up their own industry to uh, because they're looking not just for electrons, They, they want electricity, but they're also looking for an economic solution. To have good, high-quality jobs, and we've got an un- unmatched track record in that. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know our international partnerships have made us uh, really strong in sourcing from a global supply chain, where to a great degree we have compensated for what we've lacked in, in terms, you know, of an integrated approach of uh, Russia or China. So I th- I think that. You know, regardless of of um, of of whether you know the U.S. or or Korea wins in Saudi Arabia uh, or elsewhere, there's going to be substantial U.S. and Korean content in the reactors that are built. is um, was noted earlier the AP1000s um, under construction in Georgia and the ones coming into operation in China have substantial Korean content and. Uh, the AP, APR 1400s in UAE have substantial U.S. content financed by Exim Bank. So I, I think that now in a in you know in the competitive phase, it's not shouldn't be a cause for alarm that there's not um, the kind of partnership that you see uh, once the 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 scope is all worked out among the partners. Um, I think that it's. It's best for us to, to promote it, uh, to to, uh, to to think about what we can do to be more competitive. Um, that's really, I think, where the uh, the most uh, can be gained. It's the only way um, to uh, to to prevent uh, Russian and Chinese domination of these markets, and. There's a long, a wide continuum of, of um, on the trade, the nuclear trade agenda, that you know, from things that I think um, Jack would readily agree with, to things that maybe he's just not comfortable with the government role, and and then there's a lot of subtle things in the middle too. It's it's not, um, you know, government involvement isn't just about financing uneconomic nuclear power plants and in Bangladesh to the, you know, a great hit on supplier nation's treasury uh, or throwing in a, a submarine to the deal. Um, there's a lot of uh, vital government involvement from the nuclear cooperation agreement that needs to be struck uh, to the export licensing uh, and and export credit financing um, all the way to um, – effective coordination among all the departments and agencies and the government that are right now engaged in, in the international space. Um, you know, the State Department has a, an important role in negotiating cooperation agreements. Um, the DOE uh, authorizes uh, exports of technology. The NRC exports uh, – uh, authorizes exports of of items, and the Department of Commerce does some of that for balance of plant. Uh, y- you've you've got a, a huge uh, number of, of groups that are offering things. The NRC is offering international cooperation and regulatory development assistance, but rarely is it as as Paul pointed out, all sort of packaged together and and leveraged with our customer. They really just sort of coming to us as some kind of uh, smorgasbord and, you know, picking and choosing and, and a lot of um, not always well-coordinated interaction with different U.S. departments and agencies to get what they want without any overall strategy to uh, leverage a U.S.-supplied plant. Um, and so uh, that is very, very important that we start to do that more effectively It's important that we get cooperation agreements in place with markets that are developing nuclear power. Uh, We still don't have a nuclear cooperation agreement in place with Saudi Arabia, even though this has been a a, a topic of discussion between the countries for seven years at least and, and probably a lot longer than that. Um, but actively negotiating uh, or not so actively negotiating for seven years. And in the meantime, um, Saudi Arabia struck cooperation agreements with, I think, 10 countries. And uh, last year, they started moving into a procurement process uh, without even including the United States. And it was really just sort of a last-minute uh, effort by the Secretary of Energy – that shoehorned the United States into that competition, we almost completely lost out, and we need to get that 123 agreement in place. We need 123 agreements really early with countries that are thinking about nuclear energy, uh, and then we need to um, we need to reform our export control uh, system. It it still takes over a year to get a typical Part 810 authorization, and this is often needed ne- early in the. The commercial dialogue. You know, we can't be competitive ourselves. We can't be a good partner, and our partners can't be effective either uh, if we can't achieve these uh, reforms. Um, part eight tens for, and not just part eight tens, but but all export licensing to China has been frozen for the better part of a year, um, because of uh, concerns that. China is, uh, you know, diverting this nuclear energy technology to some nefarious purpose. Now, there's a lot of nefarious activities in China, but, you know, most of the technology we're talking about is not unsafe. And it's not, um, it's not amenable for military purposes. And it's, um, it's the largest market in the world we're talking about. Uh, so you know, we we all hope that we can uh, make that part of rationalizing export controls to get back in the game and resume um, in commercial engagement with with China. So with that, I'll um, I'll stop and kick it back to you, Walter, for questions. Okay. Why don't we uh, take a few
10: questions and while we're getting the mics around here? Paul, Paul I'd like to ask Paul a question. Um, under this theme of partnerships and competition, and the global nature of this, in your slide you were talking about the three final competitors for the UAE transaction. Um, I know you were involved with that uh, quite a bit. Could, could you share some insight into what did people know about in the Korean bid, the future involvement of the United States as a partner with Korea? What, what did people know, or what do we not know? How
12: much of a role did the U.S. have in that early on? I don't think it mattered very much, decision. Um, I think it mattered before and after because I think that, you know, they never awarded the final deal until there was a one, two, three agreement signed with the United States Mm -hmm. and the UAE before they, they made a final decision. Um, So, I think there was a timing issue and again from a reputational perspective there's a lot of value to the UAE in getting that one, two, three agreement. Um I think that's symbolic of the status that the US still has in certain parts of the world and our nuclear processes um still have some some tangible or and intangible value. Um but I think that that really it was um a Korean deal. It was heavily negotiated at the government level. The former president of Korea was making multiple trips back and forth to the UAE. Um, and, you know, I, I think that when you handicapped it, it was sort of, well, the, the yeah, no. ABWR is the old technology that's been built that works. The, the, um, the Arriva technology is a little bit clunkier and is having some problems. In OL3, I mean, remember this was 2009, so really the problems at Flaminville hadn't really emerged yet. And, you know, OL3 was the first one, and you could always explain away the first one. Um, You know, you can sell that, but I think the Koreans came in with a competitive offer in terms of cost and schedule, and if you benchmark it against international practice, you'd have said no way, no how. But if you benchmark it against what the Koreans have done in Korea, you would say, which we did, as, as lenders' counsel, um, as one of the advisory team, you see that, that it could stack up. And, you know, there was a really interesting article that was written a few days after um, the, the reactor was awarded. And it was, you know, you get these clipping services, and this one was by the Tehran Times. And I said, oh, I've got to read this just for fun. And, you know, 95% of the article was exactly what you would expect. But there was a really subtle theme in all of it which was saying, you know, the French were selling a reactor and they wanted all other kinds of commercial deals and things to connect it all and maybe a military base. The U.S. had all kinds of conditions like thou shalt not do this and thou must do that and blah, blah, blah. And the Koreans wanted to sell a reactor and the UAE wanted to buy a reactor. And you sat back and you said, okay, well, dismissing 95% of this article, there was a little bit of an aha moment in all of that that I think the Koreans did a, a very good job of making it about the commercial deal but underpinning it with lots of government support because when you looked at how the deal was put together what you took comfort in as a lender was not maybe some of the the project documentation but the underlying commitment of the two governments to see it through
10: good linkage other questions
7: It seems that the small modular reactor is in the valley of death. And Walter has outlined all the places that the capital is not going to come from to build this reactor. So I'm asking, where is it going to come from? And I'm concerned about this because it seems to me that this is perhaps a way that the U.S. could bring forward a superior product so that people would choose what to build on the basis of a superior product. So... I'm very interested in where you think the money is going to come from.
10: Right. Um, I'd be interested to get everyone's opinion on this question because it's very critical. Let me turn around your observation that I've pointed out where it's not coming from because that really wasn't my intent. That's very easy. It's not coming from the venture capital market. Um, But surprisingly, Mm -hmm. when we went back six or seven years ago and tried to project where the answer to your question Mm – Um, we projected that it would be much more difficult to find private sector equity than it has been. In other words, the other way of putting it is we are finding much more interest in the private sector than we had expected on the equity side, meaning wealthy individuals, because wealthy individuals are now more wealthy than countries, um, family offices, um, some private equity funds, and industrial partners and capital. That's where it is coming from. And it's coming more readily than any of us projected, than anyone ever predicted five, seven years ago. Not enough, but it's coming. For example, General Fusion has raised over $300 million on their own. And this is Fusion, not even fission, right? This is beyond, you know, new scale and and everything else. So um, that's quite encouraging on the debt side is the problem, you know, as, as Scott pointed out. Everybody wants the third of a kind. No one wants one or two, and so that's where a loan guarantee program, like a DOE, they're they're backing several. They're not picking winners or losers. They're judging the applicants based on their commercial viability to pay back the loan, Uh, and so they're offering loan guarantees to advanced reactor and SMR applicants in the you know in the U.S. and other countries are doing the same thing.
11: So uh, that's my answer. That's a yeah. good point. Uh, the startups are beginning to climb out of the valley of death. Um, uh, they're doing it through family offices, uh, impact investors that want to have a concern about climate change. Um, it's not the venture capital as yet, and it's not the big banks, obviously. Um, but there is some money starting to come out. And um, someone like a Gates and some others uh, out there who – Bezos. Yeah, Bezos, others are taking the interest. So we're starting to climb out. Um but the more we do programs like this, the more we talk about this, the more the word gets out, the more excitement there is. And I noticed, uh, in talking to Don, in his last uh, presentation he made, he was just surrounded by people he never, never seen before because uh, they're starting to get word. And if you stop for a minute and you think, well, what's, it's all about the economics, the market. So what is the market? You know, well, if you ask about the big reactors, how many of these big reactors are going to build outside of China? You know, and um, and who could? And and how many competitors are there? And how much can you make? And how many will you make? There's not a whole lot. Uh, to be honest with you, it's. Uh, but if you look at uh, what the potential is for small, affordable reactors, right. uh, it's enormous. Right. And so it's like the old old standard. You know, did you uh, twenty years ago would you invo- if, would you have inve- invested in a, in, uh, in IBM or Apple? Right. And uh, a lot of people put their safe money into into in IBM. Uh, so this is we're at an Apple moment, and, and for small modular reactors, and uh, hopefully that money will start start flowing. In the meantime, what, what uh, we're doing, Irfan Alley in the back, is with our kids can talk about this too, uh, but basically, we uh, the the provinces of Canada and the provinces of New Brunswick has come to us, offered us uh, some, some matching funds, is promising if things work out, uh, three hundred million uh, to get through the process up there, uh, because they want to create jobs, so they want they want to start they want to build they want to they want to they need uh, they need to shut down a bunch of their own coal plants. Power sources, so the government of uh, is for Canada, uh, the the province of New Brunswick, Brunswick Power have all come together and are putting together a deal because they want they want jobs, they want to revitalize the area, and they, they believe in climate change. They want to get something out of them burning coal,
10: and they want distributed power.
11: Yeah, and they want distributed mm-hmm. power, and they need it. So uh, there are formers coming together now, groups coming together that'll make this work, and we've been a beneficiary of that one. And um, but there'll I'm sure be others.
12: Um, at the risk of the roof collapsing, um, I would say that the government does need to pick winners. It's just a question of how. Um, you know, Walter, you had mentioned the the military industrial complex, and you say that you don't have fifty developers of the next generation aircraft carrier, next generation fighter, a next generation tank, or other weapon system. And I think a lot that's been very successful, we have the best military technology in the world, bar none, and it's not even close. Um, And there's a way that it's been done. And so I think a lot of lessons can be learned from that. So it's not necessarily the government making every decision along the line, but you look at sort of stage gates that can be created. And then, you know, once you get through that gate, government support is then available because I think, you know, again glass half full glass half empty but you know some people say oh look at all the interest there's like 50 some developers of smrs and advanced reactors and i sit there and say well they're not all going to get funded they can't all be regulated this is ridiculous um you know there needs to be a culling of the herd so that we can actually put something on the market fast and they can compete with oh yep the the russians and the chinese So, you know, you you again have to say, what is the market? And I think there's lots of SMR and advanced reactor discussions out there. There's tons of conferences that you can go to almost every other week. And a lot of the SMR developers say, well, here are the 10 things that my reactor can do, and here's the theoretical market. And it all sounds great, but you sort of have an iPad issue. You know, when the iPad came out, people said, well, you have a desktop computer, you have a laptop, and you have a smartphone. What do you need an iPad for? Yeah, you could use it for this. You could use it for that. But where is the actual market? Who's going to buy this thing and when? And so you look at the way our electricity markets are structured in the United States and it's a tough sell. You know, we've created – you talk about let the market decide, but then we subsidize renewables and do all these goofy things that distort the market so that it doesn't work. And then you look abroad and you say all these countries do need this. They could apply it in this fashion. But then you say, okay, now describe the project and who's going to finance it and how is it going to be measured reputationally. And if the IAE regulations are all about or, – or, or guidance is all about large-scale reactors and the 19 milestones and only the UAE could possibly come close with budget and government focus to actually do this stuff we have a deployment model that needs to be fixed so you know there's a lot of things that there's 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 justified excitement about all of this but unless we 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 actually shape the market to the results that we want we're not going to get there and and speed to market relative to the competition is going to be a good thing because if we're putting reactors on the market in 2035, I think the 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 wave of excitement will have passed. It's got to be sooner. And there's too many barriers that we've put up in terms of the process that have to be streamlined. And I think that's where government can step in, but it can't step in for, for 60 different developers. It can pick a few. And there's got to be a, a reasoned way to do that. But I think it's got to happen.
11: I, I would I just here inject and say that that uh, I and mean, I, all makes a very good point, but that if we're going to rely upon this government that has enough troubles selecting a Supreme Court justice and other uh, things, uh, I'm not sure we're going to get any any culling of, of the herd. I think the market may land up doing that, well uh, in the old fashioned way. And if you look at gas turbines, they're not they're not dependent upon the United States government. They're sold all over the world no reason that the factory-manufactured small monitors couldn't, couldn't be sold out of the world, too. It's a little more complicated than that, I understand. Uh, but I just don't think that anybody in government who's in a position to successfully do what you suggest maybe. Sorry.
10: No, well, I was going to say that um, to this comment this point about military-industrial complex or, or re-energy market, um, even the DOD struggles even to maintain two competitors once you get to a degree of complexity. Like the predator or the the 35 or a satellite system or GPS, in order to maintain the veneer of competition, even almost our U.S. government tries to maintain at least two. When the, once you get to that level of complexity, because just economies of scale globally are not there, and a gas turbine I would advocate is just so much. It's infinitely simpler than than an integrated nuclear platform. I mean, it can, but I'm but I'm saying it's it's just, it's really hard. For the U.S. model of free and open competition to compete against a country where they're unified with the government and they have one supplier, it's it's challenging. You know, but I think we can get there. It's just it's a real challenge. Oh, Sam, what do you think about capital availability? Where is it going to come from? <clears throat>
13: <clears throat> well, you know, I I think mainly about the the policy agenda. So for you know for our exporters. It's, you know, we've, we've got to have ECA financing and it's, um, you know, that will bring in other money behind it. Uh, and, but without it, we can't even meet the, the bid requirements because these, every significant nuclear tender around the world has a requirement for ECA support. So you don't even get to compete if you don't have, um, an EXIM bank. So it's uh, you know that's something that n- still hasn't been operating for uh, over four years uh, effectively, and um, so hopefully we can get that fixed soon. And,
12: and just on that point, uh, on the XM Bank point, um, US Exxon was viewed across all sectors as a leader in the market, not just in terms of the size of financing, but in the competence and leadership and diligence of projects and. And because of what's happened, they've lost that role. So, you know, we're talking about USX from a nuclear perspective, but we've taken a hit across the board because they're not in play. And a lot of the good things that they did um, in terms of assuring that projects were done well from a sustainability perspective. And, you know, you look at all this debt dependency diplomacy that's being written now about China and how the Sri Lankans gave back the port to the Chinese you know that all gets into putting together a good project and the ECA has played a very critical role in all of that and the one that was when you know when you were in the room and there were a bunch of ECAs in the room the one that kind of traditionally led the discussion as being the royal pain in the ass was US Axem and that was a good thing and we've lost that yeah.
13: Well, they're, you know, if you're talking about the advanced reactor companies, yeah. they're mostly very small, and they, um, and, you know, some of the larger companies, uh, you know, may may have larger uh, capitalization, but they've got lots of constraints on them. I mean, uh, you know, Westinghouse's new owners, um, you know, may not be keen to, uh, you know, bet the company. <laughs> on a, um, uh, you know, liability law in India, for example. What about Exelon, next era, energy? What about the buyers? Yeah, well, the, the buyers, I, I you know, they have a, a wide range of interest and appetite. But, um, you know, obviously it's, it's not that appetite and interest isn't, you know, as strong as you would like it to be, or uh, there would be a lot more investment happening right now, right?
8: Go ahead. You've dealt with the one, two, three agreements. Uh, Jim Houston here again. You've dealt with the one, two, three agreements with, you know, through NEI, probably extensively. <laughs> Is there a way to, to put more teeth into these so that we actually get something out of it? Rather than merely opening up ourselves to technology transfer, which to a great extent seems to be a one-way street. Yeah. I mean, why can't we, for example, have put into the Korean agreement that, you know, you will buy a certain percentage of Westinghouse parts or with Saudi Arabia that you will buy five SMRs. Is, is there a way to put that kind of leverage into it or is that not well, realistic?
13: Well, strictly speaking, it's, uh, as, as, uh, Al, uh, Burkhart here would, would tell you it's a, the 123 agreement is a non-proliferation agreement set out in the atomic energy act section 123 and and and, and that's that's its function but you know countries uh um, <clears throat> will do uh, agree to uh other things in the context of negotiating a 123 and paul mentioned earlier that in the case of india uh, when mm-hmm. it was really coming down to the wire, uh, U.S. Uh, State Department diplomats really drove a hard bargain and uh, uh, got a, a letter of intent from um, Shiv Shankar Menon, their national security advisor at the time, to refer 10,000 megawatts of U.S. technology on at least two sites and to adhere to all uh, –… to Here to uh, the Convention on Supplementary Compensation. Now they didn't exactly fulfill, especially the liability part, but uh, you know the, the it remains to be seen. Uh, you know they've designated two sites for U.S. companies there. It was a huge boost for U.S. companies to fulfill the commercial promise, and I think uh, I agree with Paul. That's a really good lesson to learn for future deals that, you know, it, it shouldn't just be about um, nuclear cooperation, getting general authorization and ease of U of of dealing with U.S. flagged equipment materials in the global stream of the, the marketplace. They sh- they should, you know, be required to make some commitments if they want. I just wonder if
8: the Trump administration
10: Have you you know, I always say you know, Singapore is one of my favorite examples because where else do you actually have a benevolent dictator, you know, who actually is a pretty enlightened individual, but he's a dictator, right? You got two generations, you know, but maybe going on three there. And uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever looked at an actual wiring diagram of a one, two, three negotiation, but um we did one about six years ago and it's mind boggling. I mean there's six major players and about twenty three people that have a chop on it. I mean it's nuts. <laughs> I mean, no way to run a commercial operation for a one today. Anyway, other questions? Cool. Alan, right?
3: Uh, if there's no other questions let's please uh give the second panel a hand. Thank you so much Walter for for moderating. Thank you Scott Paul and, and Ted for joining us. Um we do have a hard stop at uh fairly soon, so uh there will be lunch served out in the area where the handouts were placed. So uh please go outside and and we can continue the discussion there. Um and of course enjoy lunch and, and thank you again to to Heritage for for Hosting us and thank you for, to us, Cal, Peace Foundation USA, uh, for partnering on this event as well. Thank you very much.
11: Great job. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. I took his deal to him seven or eight years ago. He was a real estate guy, right? Yeah, now you think he's a business or
12: Sure. <laughs> sure. No, very thoughtful.
6: Well, he has a Harvard law degree and a Stanford MBA, so.